1: Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
3: The system of labor exploitation and supervision that was developed on the cotton frontier had some apparent similarities to both the task system and the gang system. But it actually was quite different, both in its processes and its results. And most important of its results was the fact that it produced dramatic leaps in the efficiency of labor. And secondly, a continuous series of leaps in the productive efficiency of labor. In other words, labor didn't just improve one time. uh, It entered a process of continuous improvement. And this is very important for the development of industrialization and capitalism in the rest of the West as well. So let's, let's talk just for a minute about uh, what Charles Ball uh, experienced uh, on the cotton frontier. Ten minutes into his first workday, he had already seen the pushing system in action. And the pushing system uh, broke one of the remaining bottlenecks of cotton production. Remember, the cotton gin had eliminated the processing bottleneck, the process of cleaning the seeds from the fiber. The pushing system eliminated uh, the bottleneck at the beginning of the cotton season. How much cotton could actually be planted and cultivated? It turns out that with the pushing system, so much could be brought to the point of actually blooming uh, and being ready for harvest that one slave working at plowing and cultivating could actually produce more cotton than he could harvest. So the question for enslavers was then, how do we push enslaved people to harvest all of that cotton. Planting becomes the major bottleneck. So let's find out how they pushed through that bottleneck and produced a continuous rise in productive efficiency. Charles Ball started in the cotton fields in early July of 1805. By late August, the cotton in the fields where he was working, Wade Hampton's fields in South Carolina, was ready to harvest. And cotton fields are a very strange looking landscape. Instead of green Once the cotton actually begins to be ready for harvest, it's a very weird white landscape, almost like a blizzard of cotton has fallen on the fields. When Charles Ball is sent into those fields the first day with the rest of the slaves and told to begin to pick the cotton, he learns that it's not just the landscape that's weird, but the process of work was strange. Every other kind of job he'd worked at depended on strength and skill. And he was very strong. And if he thought about something long enough, he could figure out a way to do it uh, in a more skillful fashion. But cotton, in fact, depended not on either of those, uh, but on skillful dexterity with the fingers, a different kind of skill uh, from the kind of skill that's involved in working with a hammer or an axe or with draft animals or something like that. In fact, this is a kind of work for which the bigger, stronger men were not always the best because their fingers were not necessarily as dexterous. So he saw children and women and other people who he didn't think of as being as strong as him speeding past him up and down their rows, picking sometimes with both hands at the same time. And he had to concentrate very hard on on what he was doing. At the end of the day, when he was very tired, his fingers were sore, he was... uh, wondering what was going to come next and why all the other workers were so nervous. He took his cotton bag with the rest of them to the scales to be weighed, and the overseer told him he had only picked 38 pounds. Now, he saw that many of the other men and women in the field had picked over 50 pounds, and yet they were being taken off to the side and whipped, and whipped severely. He didn't quite know why he wasn't whipped, but the overseer explained it to him everybody was given a certain amount to pick in a day. And this amount was calibrated to how much they had picked in the past. So people who had picked over 50 pounds were expected to pick over 50 pounds every day. Now he was going to have to pick at least 38 pounds a day. But, once he learned how to pick 38 pounds consistently, he found that his quota was raised. And the same thing was happening to everybody else. And if they did not meet that quota, they were going to be whipped even if it was the new higher quota. This was how the amount of pounds that individual enslaved people picked increased dramatically over time, and we know that it does. From 1805, when the average picking day brought in about 50 pounds, to the 1850s, when on many plantations, adults were picking over 300 pounds a day. The total amount of cotton picked per laborer in the South increases over four times context of
0: white supremacy. Guste Minigate in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, January 8th, 2016. So I have been told. Uh, the audio you heard, the author, Edward Baptist, uh, talking about some of the details that we covered just last week. The astounding frightening efficiency of white terrorism. Uh, We will get started. This is our fifth study session on Edward Baptists. The half has never been told. Uh, Pretty interesting information thus far and some moments, I think, where many folks, myself included, suspected that racism, white supremacy could be being practiced in the way that this white author is constructing the text. But uh, interesting read all the way around. We will get started picking up in chapter 4, Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never
4: Been Told, Context of White Supremacy. Learning how to meet one's quota was difficult, and those who met it before sunset still had to keep picking. As William Anderson moved toward his quota in a Mississippi field, his new enslaver repeatedly knocked him down with a heavy stick, claiming William was lagging. In Alabama in the 1820s, old Major Billy Watkins would stand at his house and watch the slaves picking cotton, and if any of them straightened their backs for a moment, his savage yell would ring, Bend your backs! In 1829, also in Alabama, Henry Gowans saw an overseer force slow women to kneel in front of their cotton baskets. Shoving their heads into the cotton, he would pull up their dresses and beat them until blood ran down their legs. Women were disproportionately targeted. Enslavers who were obsessed with getting crops to market were not interested in hearing about recovery from childbirth or gynecological problems. To make money, men are required, or boys large enough, wrote one frustrated enslaver. And another, because we have not a pregnant woman on the plantation, the females are the better pickers and have saved much the larger portion of the crop. Women nursing babies in the shade where they had been laid or toddlers among the cotton plants, all could become flashpoints for white fury. Gross has killed Sook's youngest child, wrote a white woman to her slave trader cousin. He took the child out to work. It was between one year and eighteen months old, and because it would not do its work to please him, he first whipped it, then held its head in the creek branch to make it hush crying. So, afraid of what lurked behind their bent backs, afraid of the scale and slate that lay before them, Enslaved people kept picking till the end of the day. When the weighing and account balancing by whipping was done for the evening, they tried to salve their wounds. Yet as they slept, the enslaver sat in his house. By the light of a candle, he transferred chalk totals into the more lasting ink and paper of a ledger. Then he erased the slate. And then he wrote down new and higher minimums. After Israel Campbell figured out how to meet his quota, Belfer raised Campbell's requirement to 175 pounds per day. John Brown remembered that, as I picked so well at first, more was exacted of me, and if I flagged a minute, the whip was applied liberally to keep me up to my mark. By being driven in this way, I at last got to pick 160 pounds a day, after starting at a minimum requirement of 100. Cotton picking increased because quotas rose. In 1805, Wade Hampton and his henchmen gradually increased their demands on Ball until he was picking 50-odd pounds a day. By the late 1820s, enslavers in Mississippi and Tennessee demanded 100 pounds. Five years later, that total had gone up another 30 pounds. Hands now moved like a brush heap of fire, as if, a Mississippi planter wrote, some new motive power was applied in the process as if, in other words, mechanical engines hummed inside the enslaved, as if the disembodied hands of White's language moved by themselves over the cotton plants in the field. By the 1850s, ex-slaves reported, enslavers demanded 200 pounds or more of most slaves on some places, and even 250 on others. Thus, enslavers extracted a massive rise in cotton productivity from the 1790s to 1860. While planter entrepreneurs did not publish their method for making cotton picking as efficient as possible in a textbook or an agricultural journal, they created practices, attitudes, and material goods – whips, slates, pens, paper, and the cotton plant itself – that made up the method's interlocking cogs. White overseers also played an important role, and not just as the ones who often put this system of violent labor rationalization into hour-by-hour practice – They probably invented many of the practices of accounting and torture as they carried their slates and bullwhips ever west and south. Eager to impress their employers, associating with each other, they too shared ideas and pushed their peers to conform to an ideal of absolute control over their captives through a commitment to violence. But whoever created the pushing system and the dynamically increasing picking quotas They were crucial to what one overseer called this Great Revolution in the Commerce and Manufacturers of Nations, the continuous increase in cotton productivity that shaped the 19th century transformation of the world. In 1861, the basic mechanics of arms, backs, and fingers remained as they had been in 1805, when Charles Ball came to Congaree. They were unchanged from the time when human beings invented agriculture. Nor could enslaved people imagine, when they were confronted by ridiculously high quotas, how they would pay their debt from their hands and not their skin. Often, their first solution was to try to fool the weight and cheat the whip. They hid rocks, dirt, and pumpkins in their baskets in order to make them heavier. Sometimes it worked. Israel Campbell hid watermelons in his baskets to cover the ten pounds he could never quite make. He got away with it for a year. Another method took teamwork, distracting the overseer as he manned the scale, taking advantage of the darkness outside the circle of his lamp to swap a heavy basket for a light one. Such tricks as these will be continually practiced upon an overseer who is careless or soft, wrote one planter. Overseers, however, were selected for their hardness. If they caught enslaved people trying to short the scales on their daily cotton debt, the punishment was severe. Surveillance and physical intimidation in the fields also made it difficult for pickers to cheat the scale by loading in field rocks or to run away before weighing time. Sometimes, fast workers tried to help slower ones by putting cotton in their baskets or taking their rows for a while. But enslavers usually made rules against cooperation and enforced them. Instead, as minimums increased for all over time... Entrepreneurs and exploiters forced individual enslaved people to marshal the forces of their own creativity against their own long-term health and independence, and even against each other. So, fearing punishment or even death, minds scrambled to come up with ways to speed hands. And the dramatic increase over time in the quantity picked reveals that somehow they succeeded. But how? Look at enslavers' language. It assumed that some human beings could be reduced to appendages of others. Yet it also mirrored the words that formerly enslaved people used to describe the experience of picking cotton. For they remembered that, to pick quickly enough to turn cotton entrepreneurs' calculations about profit into reality, one had to disembody oneself. Picking all day long until late at night, even by candlelight, they had to disassociate their minds from pain that racked stooping backs, from blood running down pricked fingertips, from hands that gnarled into claws over a few short years, from thirst, hunger, blurred vision, and anxiety about the whip behind and before them. One had to separate mind from hand to become, for a time, little more than a hand, or two hands, like novice picker Solomon Northrup's neighbor Patsy. While Northrup lurched down his row, the long, cumbersome sack making havoc with cotton branches and groping single cotton bowls with both hands, Patsy worked both sides of her row in perpetual motion, right and left. She reached with one hand and dropped cotton in the bag hanging from her neck with the other. Lightning quick motion was in her fingers as no other fingers possessed, Northrop later wrote. She moved like a dancer in an unconscious rhythm, though of displacement rather than of pleasure. Patsy's hands both of them, right and left, each did their own thinking, like those of a pianist. For most of the laborers, however, the left hand was a problem. Symmetry can be beautiful to witness. In tests, people seem consistently attracted to more symmetrical faces and bodies. But in fact, human beings are in crucial ways asymmetrical. Nine out of ten of us prefer to use the right hand for most tasks. Virtually all of us prefer one hand over another. And we know now that the left side of the brain controls the right hand and vice versa. The left side of the brain is more heavily involved in analytical, detailed, specific processes and thoughts. These include language and they also include skilled work with the hands. The right is more responsible for global processes, such as general perceptions of the world. Many believe it to be more artistic, more emotional. Of course, the reality is slightly more complex than a simple right-left spatial separation inside the brain. Nor is the nature of asymmetry always the same. In some left-handers, language faculties are primarily based in the right side of the brain, rather than the left. But either way, different sections of the brain play specific and distinct roles, and specific parts of the brain are linked in different ways to our dominant and non-dominant hands. Right and left hand, right and left brain, are neither equal nor interchangeable. Our hands are crucial elements of how we are wired to the world and the brain and the mind and the self. Our strong hand, whether we are right or left-handed, is the dexterous partner of our conscious, planning mind. We write, we touch, we gesture, we take more with one hand than the other, and we also work with one hand more than the other, and that hand links our work to the mind and the self making them all one whole identity. In the skilled tasks that Charles Ball did back in Maryland, the right hand always led his body. Like a woodcarver or a blacksmith, a man like Charles Ball often identified himself with the day's work he could do with an axe, led by one hand, or the scythe, ditto. So would a cook or a housemaid. She or he was more than that work. But in skilled labor in which one hand was the leader, The mind at work could sometimes express the self with mastery and joy, even if the work was forced and the product stolen. On the cotton frontier, however, quotas kept rising. Now, there are switch hitters in baseball, piano and guitar players with equally though differently skilled left and right hands. There are those who as a trick or because of injury have learned to write with each hand. But these are specific skills, learned for the purpose of distinguishing and expressing the self. In reality, almost no one is truly ambidextrous. Enslaved people were only able to pick the required amount of cotton by learning how to unhook their non-dominant hand from the tethers of bodily asymmetry and brain architecture that they had developed over the course of a lifetime. For eventually, only by using two hands that operated independently and simultaneously could they meet the rising quotas. Some hands can't get the slight of it, said one white man, who had tried to whip a young woman to make her a hand at cotton-picking. Enslavers and their victims sometimes describe the skill of working with two hands that operated independently, with neither one dominant, as the slight of picking cotton. The word means craft, cunning, the special knack or trick of something done too quickly for the eye to see. There is something left-handed about the word, something that is distinct from right-handed force. We think of sleight of hand as something employed by pickpockets, magicians, three-card monte dealers. But this sleight was different. Extracted by power, it exposed and commodified hidden individual skills. In the case of those who, like Patsy, developed the sleight of picking, what they achieved was not a mobilization of left-handed tricks to undermine right-handed power and entertain audiences, but a kind of detachment from their own consciousness. Patsy was beautiful as she moved a sense that drips out of Northrop's description of her performance between the rows. Yet her achievement was also a thing of horror. She was a person forced to toil in a hot field, but she was also one of the hands sketched in words written on paper by men sitting in cool, dark offices. Picking one cotton plant clean was much lighter work, in terms of weight-lifted or aerobic energy expended, than cutting down a tree. Yet picking cotton was at the same time much harder labor than anything else enslaved people had to do. Here, for instance, is the rest of the story of the woman who didn't get the slight of it. I whipped her, and if I did it once, I did it 500 times, but I found she could not, so I put her to carrying rails with the men. After a few days, I found her shoulders were so raw that every rail was bloody as she laid it down. I asked her if she would not rather pick cotton than carry rails. No, said she, I don't get whipped now. Repetitiveness, and above all, the demand that one become a different person, or not even a whole person, but a hand, and the wrong-handed that, these things made cotton-picking horrible. People remembered it as irksome and fatiguing. I was never thoroughly reconciled to it, they said, for it never felt like their own work or their own body. To alienate one's hands and rewire them for someone else was torment. Enslaved people, however, discovered how to do it. They had no choice. So they watched and talked to others, learning from their speed. They created, on their own, new efficiencies that shortened the path from plant to sack and back in space and time. And above all, they shut down pathways in the brain so that the body could dance like a patsy, could become, for a time, the disembodied hand of enslavers' fantastic language. The whole effort left permanent scars. Years after she learned to pick cotton in Alabama in the 1850s, an elderly woman named Adeline still couldn't stand to watch clerks weighing the meat she bought at the grocery store. "'Cause I remember so well that each day that the slaves was given a certain number of pounds to pick. When weighing up time come and you didn't have the number of pounds set aside, you may be sure that you was going to be whipped. The threat of torture drove enslaved people to inflict this creation and destruction on themselves. Torture walked right behind them. But neither their contemporaries then, nor historians since, have used torture to describe the violence applied by enslavers. Some historians have called lashings discipline, the term offered by slavery's lawgivers and the laws they wrote which pretended that masters who whipped were calmly administering punishment to correct lazy subordinates' reluctance to work. Even white abolitionist critics of slavery, and their heirs among the ranks of historians, were reluctant to say that it was torture to beat a bound victim with a weapon until the victim bled profusely, did what was wanted, or both. Perhaps one unspoken reason why many have been so reluctant to apply the term torture to slavery is that even though they denied slavery's economic dynamism, they knew that slavery on the cotton frontier made a lot of product. No one was willing, in other words, to admit that they lived in an economy whose bottom gear was torture. Yet we should call torture by its name. Historians of torture have defined the term as extreme torment that is part of a judicial or inquisitorial process. The key features that distinguishes it from mere sadistic behavior is supposedly that torture aims to extract truth. But the scale and slate and lash did, in fact, continually extract a truth, the maximum poundage that a man, woman, or child could pick. Once the victim surrendered that fact, opened up his or her left hand and revealed it, as it were, the torture then challenged the enslaved person's reason once again, to force the creation of even greater capacity to pick. Enslavers used torture to exert continuous pressure on all hands to find ways to split the self and become disembodied as the left hand at work. This was why many planters and overseers whipped even, or perhaps especially, their fastest pickers. In 1840 to 1841, Bennett Barrow, owner of a slave labor camp in West Feliciana Parish, Louisiana, kept a journal that he called his Record of Punishment. In this ledger, which records both whipping and picking, Barrow revealed how he calibrated torture. Three-quarters of the 1840 to 1841 instances of torture were directed at those who did not meet their weight. Sometimes he focused on those who failed to meet a relatively low quota, as he did on the October day when he directed a whipping frolic. He whipped eight or ten for weight today, those that pick least weights. But he actually beat the most productive cotton pickers more frequently than he did the least productive ones. He tortured his fastest male picker twice and his three fastest women nine times between them, just as Edwin Epps beat Solomon Northrop's friend Patsy until her back bore the scars of a thousand stripes. This was how clever entrepreneurs extorted new efficiencies that they themselves could not imagine they pressed their most skillful hands and contriving minds even harder. Using torture, slavery's entrepreneurs extracted an amount of innovation virtually equal in numerical measure to all the mechanical ingenuity in all the textile mills in the Western world. The enslaver's choice was a rational one, if that which increases profitability and productivity is by definition rational. On the cotton frontier, Charles Ball said, Torture was practiced with order, regularity, and system, designed to convert insufficient production into sufficient production. Sufficient, that is, until the next day, when it would be repeated. Henry Bibb's owner said that he was no better pleased than when he could hear the sound of the driver's lash among the toiling slaves, for then he knew that his system was working. Of course, not all the benefits of torture for profit appeared in black and red ink. Some enslavers beat captives who lied, and then again, as one formerly enslaved person said, when you tell them the truth, they whip you to make you lie. They beat captives who resisted. They beat those who did not. Enslavers beat the enslaved to assuage jealousy. Yes, jealousy of a field hand who had to pick 300 pounds a day. Edwin Epps envied the narrow transcendence of his power that Patsy's unconscious grace in the field revealed. Beyond the body he raped, the womb whose children he could sell, the back he flayed, there was part of her that danced, and he hated it. Meanwhile, Captain Davis, the father of James Fisher's Alabama owner, carried a whip he named the Negro Ruler. Making it a point to conquer or kill everyone he undertook to flog, he beat one man until brain damage prevented the victim from walking. He was eager to beat Fisher, too but James managed to run away before the white woman consented to let her father do so. For many Southwestern whites, whipping was a gateway form of violence that led to bizarrely creative levels of sadism. In the sources that document the expansion of cotton production, you can find at one point or another almost every product sold in New Orleans stores converted into an instrument of torture. Carpenters' tools, chains, cotton presses, hackles, hand saws, hoe handles, irons for branding livestock, nails, pokers, smoothing irons, single trees, steel yards, tongs. Every modern method of torture was used at one time or another. Sexual humiliation, mutilation, electric shocks, solitary confinement in stress positions, burning, even waterboarding. And descriptions of runaways posted by enslavers were festooned with descriptions of scars, burns, mutilations, brands, and wounds. Yet even slave owners' more irrational forms of torture could have rational outcomes. As ex-slave Henry Gowans pointed out, wild assaults cramped down the minds of their targets, if they survived, and other witnesses, who now acted as much like hands as they could. We don't usually see torture as a factor of production. Economics teachers don't put it on the chalkboard as a variable in a graph. T stands for torture, one component of S, or supply. But here is something that may help reveal how crucial systemized torture was to the Industrial Revolution, and thus to the birth of the modern world. It's a metaphor offered by a man named Henry Clay, after the architect of the American system. Born into slavery in the Carolinas, moved west as a boy, Clay recalled, after slavery ended, that his Louisiana owner had once possessed a machine which, by his account, made cotton cultivation and harvesting mechanical, rapid, and efficient. This contraption was, a big wooden wheel with a treadle to it, and when you tromp the treadle, the big wheel go round. On that wheel was four or five leather straps with holes cut in them to make blisters, and you lay the negro down on his face on a bench and tie him to it. When the operator pumped the treadle to turn the wheel, the straps thrashed the back of the man or woman tied to the bench into blistered, bloody jelly. According to Clay, the mere threat of this whipping machine was enough to speed his own hands. The contraption may have actually existed. More likely, however, the whipping machine was not a material thing of wood and leather, but a telling tale. Clay was using a metaphorical argument to say that every cotton labor camp carved out of the southwestern woods used torture as its central technology. Every single day, calibrated pain, regular as a turning gear, challenged enslaved people to exceed the previous day's gains in production. Planters and entrepreneurs rarely talked about how other human beings actually picked cotton, but they didn't need to. They had only to deploy and tune the technology of the whip, steel yard, and slate in order to force people to focus their minds on inventing new ways to perform repetitive and mind-numbing labor at nearly impossible speed. Fingertips hardened, but also became more subtle and swift. Enslaved people developed different tricks, ways to get down the row with as little wasted movement as possible. Some of the new discoveries they could teach to each other But ultimately, one also had to split one's own consciousness in half in order to generate unseen creativities of movement, new graces of speed. Thus, torture compelled and then exposed left-handed capacities, subordinated them to the power of the enslaver, turned them against people themselves. And thus, untold amounts of mental labor, unknown breakthroughs of human creativity, were the keys to an astonishing increase in cotton production that required no machinery. Save the whipping machine, of course. With it, enslavers looted the riches of black folks' minds, stole days and months and years and lifetimes, turned sweat, blood, and flesh into gold. They forced people to behave in the fields as if they themselves were disembodied, mechanical hands that moved ever more swiftly over the cotton plant at the wave of the enslaver's hand. Enslavers forced the slight of the left hand to yield to the service of their own right-handed power. It was true that when entrepreneurs made plans, their desires sometimes ran away with them, and they counted on grandiose futures that might never come to pass. They looked at people with heads and arms and legs and could not see anything but cotton bales, ex slaves said. Mississippian slaver Daniel Jordan, for example, made the wild prediction in 1833 that he would get ten bales to the hand, speaking as if the people who picked his cotton were bizarrely disembodied hands. Yet some of these plans did come to pass. The whipping machine that enslavers built in the southwestern slave labor camps enabled them to reshape the world along the lines of their own fanciful calculations of people into hands, hands into bales, bales into money, and money into hands again. Hard forced labor multiplied U.S. cotton production to 130 times its 1800 level by 1860. Slave labor camps were more efficient producers of revenue than free farms in the north. Planter entrepreneurs conquered a subcontinent in a lifetime, created from nothing the most significant staple commodity stream in the world economy. They became the richest class of white people in the United States, and perhaps the world. On that first 1805 evening, Charles Ball still stood uncertainly outside the lantern-light circle. The overseer had called out his 38 pounds of cotton and warned him about the second day's number. The drivers took several others off to the side. Ball stood by with feelings of despondence and terror, whilst the other people were getting their cotton weighed. But when the overseer walked over to where Ball stood, he simply examined Ball's hands and then said, You have a pair of good hands. You will make a good picker. This was both reassurance and threat. Your hands, he was telling Ball, will allow you to become a hand. We will make you make yourself into a good picker. In the days that followed, Ball pushed himself frantically, willing his hands to move faster. After a couple of weeks, he had reached an average level. The next day, he increased his total by a few pounds, and then the white men who drove and measured him established a new, higher minimum. But Ball never excelled. He complained that he was hardly regarded as a prime hand. In Maryland, though he was not free, Ball had taken pride in the good things his brain and body could do together. They made him a man, in his view, and an individual as well. They brought him a family. In South Carolina, he was never comfortable with the way cotton-picking required him to subordinate his inventive mind and muscles that were products of 10,000 hours of hard labor to the endless repetition of his hands. And it brought him nothing but an unwhipped back for one more day. The left-handed innovations that Ball had to surrender, imposing self-torture to avoid that done by others, was in 1805 a future through which millions of people would be compelled to pass. The woods that shadowed Ball at the end of the day stretched a thousand miles away west, finally running out in central Texas. Everything in between, and even beyond, was potentially cotton land. For the next half century, new fields ran west and south like wildfire from the Congaree, changing the world. One tree cut down, one field plowed, one bag picked at a time. Slave labor camps spread more quickly than any agricultural frontier had expanded in human history. Felled logs smoldered in countless new grounds. Fields widened. The processes of handmaking churned in a vast and ever-widening and thickening circle. By the time William from Baltimore came to James Still's place, which just happened to be right across the Mississippi River from Wade Hampton's new Louisiana slave labor camp, Everything Charles Ball had to produce in South Carolina had raised the ante for what William would have to do. A few months after his sale, William woke up and found that he, too, would have to make his hands learn to pick cotton. Of course, learning how to meet the daily demands of the overseers was measurably harder in 1819 than it had been in 1805. Yet hands were not only white entrepreneurs' disembodied appendages, James Still had bought men who had been transformed into commodities. He drove them hard, and by the beginning of August 1819, they had their first taste of cotton picking, and, no doubt, the brutality of the southwestern Negro whip. A few days into the picking season, however, four of Still's hands crossed the river and went south 50 miles into the German coast's sugar country. At William McCutcheon's slave labor camp, the same camp that in 1811 had been the source of many rebels, they tried to break into the storeroom. McCutcheon heard a noise, came out, and surprised the escaped captives. Two pointed guns at him. From five yards away, they snapped their triggers. But the powder was wet. The guns misfired, and McCutcheon sounded the alarm. Enslavers soon captured two of the runaways and killed a third. The fourth escaped into the tall August sugar cane. The whip drove men and women to turn all of their bodies and much of their minds to the task of picking faster and faster. But gang labor could never occupy every corner of every person's brain. There was always nighttime. So Charles Ball walked back to the small village of huts, where the exhausted and bruised people, among whom he had found himself, were trying to survive. And a man, for all we know, Rachel's shipmate William, crouched in McCutcheon's cane field, trying to still his wildly thumping heart, lest his pursuers hear. 5. Tongues 1819-1824 to 1824. She had come from far away. Her journey down from Kentucky, all the tears she had cried when Robert Dickey bought her and left her mother at New Orleans, they had drained her. Now she was dead. But her body could not settle into death on a cooling board, couldn't take the slow, bumpy ride on the mule cart. Instead, morning after Louisiana morning, her body shuffled into a sea of cotton. Her hoe rose and fell, rose and fell with the others. The sun that beat her was gray, not gold, though the sky burned white-hot at three in the afternoon. Dust coated her legs and arms until they looked as gray as the underworld that her vacant stare took in. Water from the dipper scratched her tongue like sand. Her corpse grew thinner. Men tried to speak to her. Their voices sounded far away, as if she lay at the bottom of the sea. Their faces shimmered over a surface she could not breach. Some looked kind, some greedy for a new woman, some waiting to see if she would gasp for help. But her dry tongue clove to the roof of her mouth. Wordless haunts like her wandered the landscape of slavery's southwestern frontier. They hid in abandoned corn cribs, waited at crossroads, chased children from places where blood had spilled. They were girls who killed themselves after being beaten for leaving the onions out of the stew. They were men who disappeared after the master caught them praying that slavery would end. Slaves born in Africa told others that if you died outside God's presence, perhaps because you were the victim of violence so horrifying that even a deity couldn't bear to watch, half of your spirit might remain behind, wandering the crime site, thirsty for peace. Soon she would be another wisp on the night breeze. But as long as her working body inched up one furrow after another, she was also another story of the undead. Before the Haitian Revolution, Africans toiling in the sugar fields of Saint-Domingue spread the story of the Zombie. This was a living dead person who had been captured by white wizards. Intellect and personality fled home, but the ghost spirit and body remained in the land of the dead, working at the will of the sorcerer planters. Any slave could be a zombie. She already was one, in fact. And after the spirit departed, the individual body that remained might not last much longer. It might shake to death with the country fever, or be beaten and killed by a furious overseer. She might waste away in the gray country until one morning the threat of whip couldn't rouse her, one more uncounted ghost whose spirit and body had wilted and died in the new ground of the southwestern frontier. But if individual bodies died, more kept coming. In the broader sense, the body of slavery, the system of slave trades and whipping machines, of right and left-handed power that enslavers were assembling, this kept growing. Years later, she remembered her zombie days, and she never forgot the living men who called to her. They fished for her spirit, down in dark oceans of their own. Daughter, sister, wife, lover they named her. Her faces they remembered. Nights at the fire, they talked about her. They knew the cold terrain of the submerged city where she wandered. When they lay down, they wondered about her to themselves. Then they dreamed of their own lost people. No name turned the key of their prison. They stopped talking and started singing. Out under the sun, corn-shucking songs that laughed to a fiddle-sawing beat just wouldn't do. Out here, hands were turning their own muscles into someone else's cash, So every song was a question. Am I born to die and lay this body down? Some say that songs talked in cipher about running away. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye, to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Some say those songs just promised pie in the sky. But either way, these songs acknowledged that tears watered any Eden their singers could imagine. For only once songs sounded the depths of the river could singers and listeners wade through the sorrow to walk on the other bank. So in the dead land, the men sang to her. The sound faded across the rows of plants, The dusty mechanism of her arms rose and fell. At last they tried a new tune whose wave carried across the gray field. The melody rose to joy and plunged to sadness and back again. Simple words named the brutality of their shared fates, and simple words promised that the world might have color once again, if the song could but sweep her up to the surface. Hair as black as coal in the mine, little Liza Jane, eyes so large and big and fine, Little Liza Jane, you are beautiful. We need you. You cannot go where you are trying to go. Come back up. Join us. You plant a patch of cotton, I'll plant a patch of cane. I'm going to make molasses to sweeten Liza Jane. The singers kept one eye on the overseer. The other watched her. For they knew that no matter how they strove with their song, she would never see her mother again. As the men sang the verse again, they saw her bend down, holding onto the handle of her hoe for support. Here she was, all alone. Her chest lifted and fell in convulsions. She could not bring herself to go on living by herself. But they were asking her not to let herself die. Sobs began to heave out of her mouth. The men came around to the chorus. They felt the pain in their own dead flesh, cracking, as the part that wanted to live tried to break through. Oh, Liza, poor gal, oh, Liza Jane. Oh, Liza, poor gal, she died on the trail. Liza, they sang. Lucy raised her head. Tears flowed down her face and she opened her mouth. I got happy, Lucy Thurston remembered 80 years after her resurrection, and sang with the rest. In the 30-odd years since the 1780s, when slavery's survival as an institution had looked so imperiled, A complete reversal had taken place. The new zombie body of slavery, stretched by new kinds of power, new technologies of exploitation, new markets, and new forms of credit, was now growing at a metastatic rate. Individuals like Lucy, their lives ripped asunder so that their market value could be extracted, were watching as their links to hope and to each other dissolved. And what could bring an end to their ongoing torture? Enslaved people's opportunity for collective resistance along the lines of Saint-Domingue had been foreclosed by enslavers and governments. Nor could enslaved people call upon powerful allies who might help bring about a peaceful end to slavery's expansion. For virtually all white Americans were now interested, almost all profiting in some way, financially, psychologically, or both, from slavery's growing empire— The bond between white people was about to be tested by the political controversy called the Missouri Crisis, in which northern and southern congressmen divided over the question of whether slavery should grow even more. The crisis lasted from 1819 to 1821, causing political insiders to panic, such as retired President Thomas Jefferson, who famously referred to it as a fire bell in the night. In the end, however, the crisis itself a product of white people's successful conquest of half a continent, would, by its outcome, raise the question of how enslaved people could ever draw upon any resources beyond their own and those of the others in the same coffles and fields and slave quarters. At the same time, if people like Lucy could not survive in body and mind, it was obvious that no reversal of history's course since the 1780s would be possible. And if survival by means of outside help was unlikely, survival through the efforts of the enslaved acting together may have seemed even more unlikely. To understand why, plumb the depths of loss that Liza and Lucy's chorus knew so well. Many of the people who came out of the chains and off the blocks, who couldn't make their weight in those first weeks in the cotton fields, had lost everything, their words, their selves, even their names. It was no foregone conclusion that Lucy Thurston would even remember her name, much less speak again. Forced migration to the frontiers of slavery took children from parents who named them and taught them to talk, brothers from sisters who carried them as babies, wives from husbands who would whisper to them in the night, men from friends who had taken whippings rather than betray them. Survival by means of joint effort would require strong bonds, and all existing strong bonds had been broken. One woman on Joseph Shepard's Mississippi plantation changed her name to Silence. Another sold-off woman said she was no longer Sophia, but Sophia Nobody. Many found that when they reached back for essential memories, nothing was there. Margaret Nickens' mother and father, brought to Missouri from Kentucky and Virginia as children, forgot their own parents' names. When they saw an adult slave who resembled their fuzzy memories, they asked, Are you my mother? Are you my father? A Tennessee girl lay in childbirth when to her appeared a woman. Who are you? She groaned, not recognizing. Don't forget the old folks, the ghost replied, and vanished. Only then did the daughter recognize her own dead mother. The midwife put an axe under the bed to cut the young woman's pain as the contractions grew harder. Soon she'd name her own newborn, a sword to pierce her own heart, another child sentenced to be sold from her mother from the Atlantic ships, ancestors had crawled, more dead than alive. Against all odds, strangers from 100 different ethnic groups had learned to talk to each other and become kin. Now another massive disruption was taking place, and it, too, was destroying families and social networks, sweeping away all of the relationships and statuses that made up the structure of social life. Like the earlier Middle Passage, the journey along the road southwest had given many reason to feel distrust of their peers, if not of relatives, then of the wider circle of the people who shared their badges of slavery. They'd been talked into coming in from hideouts in the Carolina woods, only to find they had been sold running to a trader. Slave traders and slave assistants doctored people up, black their hair, rubbed their skins slick with oil to grease prices higher. In the jails where coffles slept, bullies intimidated the small stole food, and raped. Traders betrayed plans for revolt. On new slave labor camps, the pushing system pitted migrants against each other. When picking season came, one person's skill could push up another's quota. After weighing up, some might become friends. Others already planned to be enemies. One man might see in another a competitor for a woman, and in a woman a conquest. A woman, in turn, might see another woman as a rival. Small rewards of money or favor convinced captives to abandon incipient solidarity. William Anderson complained that slaves are sometimes great enemies to each other, telling tales, lying, catching fugitives, and the like. All this is perpetuated by ignorance, oppression, and degradation. When another captive saw Anderson, who had recently been transported from Virginia to Mississippi, eating a stolen fowl, he ran and told the overseer that William was eating up all of the chickens on the place. Anderson got 100 lashes. In the older states, many enslaved African Americans had believed that techniques from African spiritual traditions could enable one to exert some control over events. William Grimes, who had been sold to Georgia from his Virginia home in around 1800, consulted fortune tellers. They reassured him, telling him he would one day be free. Henry Bruce remembered that some of the other people enslaved in Virginia with him had hired a slave conjurer to bury a little ball of what looked like dirt, a jack or hand, a symbolic object, under the doorstep of an enslaver who was planning to move them to Alabama. When the white man changed his mind, at least temporarily, all of the African Americans congratulated themselves on their success. Enslaved migrants brought these traditions to the frontier. Archaeologists have dug up little brass hands under doorsteps in the slave quarters of Andrew Jackson's hermitage slave labor camp outside of Nashville. Yet Bruce, who was transported to Missouri, Mississippi, and Texas over the years, despite anything conjurers could do, noted that many enslaved people on the frontier had changed their minds about the efficacy of voodooism, as he called it. With him, some now scoffed at their peers' claims that their once magical hands could control white people's growing right- and left-handed power. And in their desperate, isolated circumstances, those enslaved people who could exert some control, magical or otherwise, often used it as what ex-slave Henry Bibb called instrumentality, a tool for getting what one wanted, no matter how it hurt other enslaved people. When Grimes got to Georgia, for instance, his enslaver told him he had to sleep in the same bed as an older woman who manipulated the slave owner. The teenaged Grimes complained to his owner that Aunt Frankie was a witch who was trying to ride him. The enslaver told Grimes to get back into bed and give the woman what she wanted. Even among those with goodwill, different origins could be a cause of conflict. Some people clung to the shreds of old identities, sometimes using them as walls to hold away or even abuse those among whom they were now enslaved. Grandpa loved Virginia long as he had breath in him, said a woman born in a Mississippi labor camp. At Congaree, the enslaver forced Charles Ball's Maryland-born friend Lydia to marry a man from Africa. This man spoke only rough English. Enslavers made him work with the other hands in the field, but as soon as he had come into his cabin, he took a seat. He refused to help Lydia with cooking, cleaning, child care, or the family garden patch. And he beat her. Many enslaved people spoke literally different languages. As of 1820, enslaved people in many Louisiana labor camps, like Ile Breville on the Red River, for instance, spoke only French, or Creolized African-French hybrid tongues. Captives from the Chesapeake, including Charlotte Rogers of Virginia, couldn't communicate with them. Isolated, she imagined her mother was there singing beside her as she labored. She walked miles to meet a new arrival to Louisiana, one whom she had heard was from her own Virginia. Even in English-speaking districts, eastern seaboard accents sounded strange on slavery's frontier. Migrants from South Carolina's Low Country spoke the Gullah dialect, or an African language. At Congaree, in the Carolina interior, Charles Ball met an African-born Muslim man who prayed in Arabic. Elisha Gary remembered that his grandmother Rachel, whom the traders fought to Georgia from Virginia in the early 19th century, never did learn to talk plain. Yet over the first half of the 19th century, enslaved people across the southwestern cotton frontier developed the talking that seemed plain to Elisha Gary. Nobody knows how long it took to create a common accent, vocabulary, and grammar, but enslaved migrants to the plantation frontier created this dialect, and it was what linguistic scholars call modern vernacular African-American English. The crucibles where they forged the new way to talk plain were places like the cabin to which the overseer assigned Charles Ball, a dwelling that already contained a man named Nero, his wife, and their five children. Nero surely could not have been overjoyed by this development, a young man moving in with him and his family, but he led Ball to his home with welcome anyway. They ducked through the cabin's low doorway, and then the man's naked four-year-old girl collided around her father's knees with an excited hug. She'd been babysitting her infant brother all day, and her father's return meant relief and food. Now we shall get good supper. Nero looked down at her for a moment and then turned back to Ball. Did you leave any children at home? Ball couldn't choke out a word. Nero fell silent, too. When his wife, Dinah, came in, followed by the couple's three older children, and heard the news that a new body would further crowd their tiny cabin, she simply went out to gather wild greens. These she boiled and added them to the family's weekly cornbread ration. Ball sat down with them, and for a few minutes, the world no longer seemed to swim around his eyes. After eating, he climbed into the loft of the cabin and rolled up in an extra blanket they had given him. Soon, Ball was drawing his own weekly ration of corn, but he piled it in Dinah and Nero's basket, and they shared it equally. A few days later, Dinah offered him some of the molasses that she and Nero had bought with money earned by weaving baskets for sale in the evenings. I therefore proposed, Ball recalled three decades later, that, as a member of the family, I would contribute as much towards its support as Nero himself. The pennies he had made from selling wooden bowls that he carved would go into the family pool. They shared the produce of their garden patch with him. The family traded ears of corn from Nero's patch for beans that Lydia had grown. Families and communities do not run on the fuel of pure altruism. Everyone got something from these exchanges. People from different origins, collected together in a system designed to pit them against each other even when they were working in the same field, could have chosen not to help each other. Some at Congaree were selfish and grasping, but more saw that survival required them to make a new and different kind of family. Even those who stayed outside drew benefit. Ball helped Lydia's troublesome husband to dig a grave for their baby boy because he knew of no other way to help Lydia. He watched the African man lay his son in the ground. Beside the tiny body, the father laid items for the boy's brave journey across the water to a place where the father's ancestors waited. A small bow and several arrows, a little bag of parched meal, a miniature canoe about a foot long, and a little paddle, a piece of white muslin with several curious and strange figures painted on it in blue and red. By this, he told Ball, his relations and countrymen would know the infant to be his son and would welcome the boy back into his ancestor's kingdom. He put a lock of his own hair on his son's chest, scooped dirt into the grave with his hands, and told Baal and the others present that the god of his country was looking at him and was pleased with what he had done. Lydia's husband could not bring himself to reach out to the living people in his new world. Only the dead received his trust. But many others chose to treat unknown fellow migrants like brothers or sisters. After teenager John Brown was sold from Virginia to Georgia in the late 1820s, he endured vicious beatings at the hands of his new owner. I used to wish to die, and only for John Glasgow I think it must have come to that very soon, he later reflected. Glasgow, an older man, led one of the work gangs. He taught Brown how to keep the pace in the cotton field, and told the boy not to cry after my father and mother and relatives, for I should never see them anymore. He encouraged me to try and forget them for my own sake. Death was here, but so was life, and Glasgow guided Brown toward the second. When the enslaver shattered Brown's nose and eye socket with a booted kick, Glasgow cleaned the teenager's wounds. With a careful hand and a warm ball of tallow, he massaged Brown's displaced eyeball back into place. Like the other things that enslaved people shared, food they cooked, bean plants in a garden patch, enough space for one man to lie down in a cramped cabin, a piece of hard-won advice. Caring hands helped migrants to come out of the first few days and weeks alive. After that, captives of the new slave labor camps began to work together. So as winter approached, Ball and Nero each bought three blankets with their small extra earnings. Cut up and sewn carefully, they made eight warm coats for Ball and the family. The small village on the edge of the cotton frontier built patterns that linked small groups together. Every Monday night, after weekly rations were distributed, one member of each household had to wait for a turn to grind corn at the handmill in the yard. The last one did not finish until one in the morning. They assigned the sequence by lot. Each person ground his or her own corn and woke the next one. Not everything was collective. Enslaved people shared possessions, but they also used them to mark out boundaries, forming relationships and structures out of both contention and cooperation. I am more than a hand, said the little money making tobacco patch that Jimmy planted in the Tennessee woods owned by his enslaver. I am more than what the law says, more than a body to be sold, beaten, raped, and divided from my children at the will of whites, said Myra, who wanted a calico coat so she could show out on Sundays. I am not cheap, worn out, identical to a thousand others. I am unique, said the umbrella old Toby carried under his arm when he walked to town on a hot Mississippi Sunday, hoping to meet his next wife. Though scarcer on the southwestern frontier than back east, possession shouted all the louder, because they now had to assert an identity for people who had not known one since birth. The things people made and claimed as their own even marked ties beyond the grave. While chopping firewood one day in the Alabama woods, Anthony Abercrombie became aware of a spectral presence hovering in a nearby tree. He dropped his axe and ran, but later realized that the ghost dropping nuts from the tree must have been Joe. Joe had promised Anthony 25 cents for helping him to shuck his corn. But before Joe could sell the corn, get the money, and pay Anthony, Mars Jim had shot Joe dead. Now Joe was back to fulfill his obligation giving him something to gather and sell. While enslaved people with almost nothing to divide were finding ways to make their might into a basis for sharing, the first wave of slavery's expansion were creating tremendous gains for white Americans. The surge after 1815 was particularly lucrative. Many of the new dollars suddenly circulating through the U.S. economy had been generated by the toil of people who had been commodified as hands and then put into the whipping machine. Economic power meant political power. Since Jefferson's victory in 1800, an alliance between northern and southern pro-expansion white politicians who simply referred to themselves as Republicans had dominated American politics. John Quincy Adams, son of the only non-Virginia president to serve before the 1820s, had switched from the Federalists to the Republicans while representing Massachusetts in the Senate during Jefferson's second term and the results of the Battle of New Orleans made the Federalists irrelevant. Heirs of Thomas Jefferson, critic and beneficiary of slavery, the Republicans had already presided over a massive extension of human bondage. Despite the claims of Virginians that the diffusion of slavery across the southwestern frontier would make the institution somehow dissipate, Northerners who had traveled on business to New Orleans or Alabama understood that the opposite was happening. By the 1810s, thanks to the Constitution's bargains, 17 southern congressmen represented three-fifths of the slave population, though, of course, not the interests of the enslaved, but of the enslaver. This increment allowed southern politicians to dominate the Republican faction, and thus, with the loyalty of northern Republicans, the entire government. After all, cotton entrepreneurship passed on benefits to the north, Expanding credit markets, supporting trade, and making markets for the new textile mills being established by John Quincy Adams's constituents. Adams was a good Republican soldier. He was now a Secretary of State for President James Monroe, another Virginia slaveholder. But he complained that the slave representation will be forever thrown into the Southern scale. In other words, The pounds of cotton that mounted up on the steel yards of new southwestern labor camps did more than tell the truth about an individual's daily picking. When the pounds were counted and multiplied by the number of the enslaved, they also created more money, more slavery, more southern congressmen and senators, and more legislation favorable to the South. And then, in turn, even more money, even more slavery. On and on in a continuous growing cycle. The ever-growing weight of slave owners' political power, worried the New Englander in Adams, must forever make ours kick the beam.
0: Context of white supremacy. Uh, That is the first audio segment. Um, Within, I'd say within the last two weeks or so, uh, there's been uh, some tech issues with the audio player. Uh, Once I upload the audio clip so that I can just play it uh, from the switchboard, uh, sometimes it will just stop playing. Uh, If anything, you just make sure that I am mindful to see exactly so that I can pick right back up where it stopped at. That's what I think it happened twice uh, this week. Uh, It's happened a few other times uh, here and there over about the last two weeks or so. But that is uh, beyond my control could be racist interference and or uh, just poor technology on the parts of whites. Uh, But that's what it is. Hopefully uh, that will be worked out as we move forward at any rate. Uh, fifth study session if folks would like to chime in to share their thoughts on the first audio segment uh feel free the number to dial is six four one seven one five three six four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate Uh, that number again is six four one seven one five three six four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate Uh, you can use the vote line as well The vote line, it should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you're not at Black Talk Radio, the address is tinytiny.cc forward slash one race, and that is the number one. The address again, tinytiny.cc forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put that address in, uh, click the link on the left of the page. Uh, it says free vote dialer or free vote line. Uh, when you click that, it will open a tiny window uh, on your screen. First line, uh, it will, it's a drop-down menu. Uh, you can just pick the number that I just gave out, which again is 64171536. Uh, the next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can click random keys. You can use a real name if you're comfortable with that, nickname, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom and it will connect you to the live program. We'll be able to see you on the screen. Uh, it's the same procedure. Just press star six. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Uh, when you do that, uh, it will give you an audio prompt to press one. I'll see your hand. We can get you on the line. Uh, with that, uh, folks have comments on the first segment from this week's portion of the reading. Uh, feel free. We should have uh, Thomas in New York as well as Mr. Demry. Four. good to hear from you both. Feel free to chime in.
2: Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, greetings to us. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Um, I'll start with um, what stood out to me was the mental damage of the terrorism that was inflicted upon these enslaved uh, African people it was evident in the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in the elderly woman, Adeline, when even after she was no longer picking cotton, you know, and she was just at the uh, butcher counter buying some meat, she could not stand to see the meat being weighed. Because of the terrorism that was exacted upon her during the weighing process of the cotton. Also, uh, Patsy was mentioned. Uh, she was from Twelve Years a Slave. Um, actually, uh, Epps, the old slave owner, was beating her. <clears throat> that was. You know, I guess that clears up uh, why Epps would constantly beat her, but yet uh, use her as a sexual object. You know, um, when the author described that he would, that the owners, you know, using some type of sick uh, pathological psychology would beat the slaves that would not pick their quota and also would beat the ones that were the, the excellent pickers, the best ones, which does not make any sense. But if you're talking about a sick system and a bunch of pathological uh, terrors, then I guess it's no logic to be applied. Uh, Also, what was interesting on page 139 was uh, when he went on talking about the difference of the left and the right hand and how, I guess, the right hand is controlled by the left side of the brain and vice versa. But the cotton pickers were forced to disembody themselves and to unhook the detachment of the normal use of the dominant hand. And I think that, you know, these techniques and torture that was used by these terrorists uh, is compatible with what they were doing in Abergray. The waterboarding, torture techniques. And this book even points out that anything that was sold in a store uh, the holes that were used to chop the stalks down, saws, uh, I guess screwdrivers, pliers, anything you could name, they were using against the enslaved people. And then the book had nerds enough to describe the difference uh, in using this type of behavior as sort of, I guess, a scientific way to produce uh, and to become more efficient. But I think it was just sheer torture and a sadistic behavior of the whites. Also, Henry Bibb was mentioned, a former slave that wrote a narrative He said that his owner was no better pleased than when he could hear the sound of the driver's whip, for he knew that his system was working. And it's been my theory that all these books that are written on slavery and any type of demise that is uh, uh, exacted upon black people is sort of a measuring device so that they can see that their system is working, just like this old slave owner, I almost called him a name, uh, as he was listening to the whip, thinking his system was working. And one last thing, the religion of white supremacy, example... they would introduce Christianity to the slaves and then whip them for praying for an end of slavery. But some of the high points, one of the high points was that some people showed self-respect by not snitching on runaways at the risk of beating and maybe even kill it. And also the sharing that took place among the slaves. And there was also mention of the anti blackness that had been breed among the slaves by pitting one against the other. In an earlier reading, uh, I guess Charles Ball was picking cotton with Simon. And they was working side by side, but only said a few grunts to each other, Uh, which is odd when you're working in the field all day and you're in close proximity of someone, you just naturally would talk to them. But they were under so much uh, pressure from this terroristic behavior of the white slave owners that they probably didn't even have anything to talk about. But later on in the in the chapter, uh, Simon uh, told Charles Ball about uh, conserving his energy because they would have to pick until nightfall, until they could no longer see how to pick the cotton. I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call. Right
5: on. Right on. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to the callers. Mr. Dittery, great observations. Um, I made a few of the scenes. Um, the clip at the top of the show you played, and that sounds like um, so many jobs I've had where, um, you know, you feel like you're getting pushed to the limit and timed, and then, you know, you make this, um, you make this, this, um, you do something really good at a real good time, and now that's the time you're supposed to do it all the time. They don't want to hear nothing else. Just um, you know how this, the whole chapter so far has played out. Um, beat them until they changed the way their brains work. We're forced to use both hands separately, and for some reason, you know, we, when you were when the author was reading that part, it took me back to basketball training. You know where, you know you were so much emphasized emphasis was on using both hands. You know being able to use your left hand as good as your right hand, and um, you know having coaches who you know tied one hand behind you, you know tie your your right hand behind your back, so you only could dribble with your left hand and shoot with your left hand, and you know you just brought me that. Um, even though of course you know that's not done under the the whip and chains, but just, um, how that still plays out. Um, there were several, you know, th- these people had to be severely mentally ill, the slaves, um, you know, to suppress their memories of loved ones, to hide the the pain they felt when they were snatched away from that loved one or that loved one was snatched away from them, you know, um, to bury, bury it under all the abuse and beatings they've taken, you know, it's just too painful to think of things because, you know, it's, it's never a great memory, you know. Um, Mr. Fuller said to keep black people moving, never get comfortable. Um, and I think this kind of, you know, was probably where they got that idea from was doing slavery. They would keep the people moving around, break up the bonds and friendships. And then they would later um, play one slave against the other knowing that they didn't have a stronger bond as they probably would if they weren't moved around as much. So it was easy to, to, to set them off against each other. And, um, you know, I think, um, uh, Mr. Demi also touched on the post-traumatic slave, um, post-traumatic, um, stress syndrome. And, um, you know, um, I also think it's like war. Um, you know, you, you may have, to accept the fact that you're never going to see your family again just to survive. You know, one of my favorite movies, um, Dad, Presidents, LeVance Tate refused to look at his daughter's picture, read his family or his girlfriend's letters. You know, he felt like if he ever looked at those things, then that was it for him. You know, like that's what he was holding on to uh, was those memories. And, you know, if he starts thinking, oh, I'm coming home one day, that's going to be the day he doesn't go home. And I think that, that that had to play out with these people, too. You know, um, you know, you lost someone real. You lost your mother. I mean, she's she was snatched out of her arms, and you can't think of her right now. You, you know, you, you're getting beat to death. You have to survive, and survival comes first. And um, it's just so sad, you know, reading this. it been a very good book because it's very informative. I'll mute my life for now. Thank you. Can
6: I be heard? <laughs> yes, sir. Greetings to you, Gus. Uh, Greetings to all of the callers and the listeners. Um, Yes, this this book is really uh, very, very, very constructive and informative. I have a few points I wanted to make. Um, Again, speaking to the plays being brutalized into using both hands, made me think of something that I saw um, probably within the last two years. And to me, it seems like, and I think you had a couple of um, doctors on the show. I think it might have been Dr. Darren T. Smith and another one who spoke about the genetic shifts that can take, that, the, um, that black people have been shown to take uh, under the pressure of white supremacy, meaning that under this system, basically in one lifetime, you can change a black person's genes just through their experiences with racism and white supremacy. And to me, just that ability to become so dexterous with both hands is indicative of that kind of shift. And it made me think of something that I saw um, on a documentary, I believe it was on the... Channel or National Geographic, in which elephants in, in a certain part of Africa have, because of the fact they have been hunted so mercilessly for their ivory, that they're now uh, be, uh, being born without tusks. And that's basically a genetic shift towards protecting themselves from being slaughtered by poachers. And to me, that's essentially what I saw when I saw this particular um, area where they talked about brutalizing these uh, African captives um, into using both hands so dexterously to the point that it became an art form, uh, as far as the way he described it in the book. And uh, there was a section uh, at the bottom of that page, 138, that led to 139, that talked about, it says, uh, picking one cotton plant clean was much lighter work in terms of weight, lifted, or aerobic energy expended than cutting down a tree. Yet, picking cotton was, at the same time, much harder labor than anything else enslaved people had to do. Here, for instance, is the rest of the story of the woman who didn't get the slight of it. I whipped her. And if I did it once, I did it 500 times. But I found she could not. So I put her to carrying rails with the men. After a few days, I found her shoulders were so raw that every rail was bloody as she laid it down. I asked her if she would not rather pick cotton than carry rails. No, she said. I don't get whipped now repetitiveness and above all the demand that one become a different person or not even a whole person, but a hand and the wrong hand at that. These things made cotton picking horrible. People remembered it as irksome and fatiguing. I was never, I was never thoroughly reconciled to it. they say for it never felt like their own work with their own or their own body. And to me, this really speaks volumes to this sort of brutality that these people were under simply because picking cotton was such hell that she would rather have rails cut into her shoulders and be brutalized in a whole different manner that I guess she felt she had more personal direct control over rather than the lack of control of the brutality of white people's lips and whatever other sick devices they were devising to brutalize our ancestors. And um, also I thought about the section, actually a paragraph down from where it says the threat of torture drove enslaved people to inflict this creation and destruction on themselves. Torture walked right behind them, but neither their contemporaries, then nor historians since, have used torture to describe the violence applied by enslavers. Some historians have called lashing discipline, the term offered by slavery's lawgivers and the laws they wrote, which pretended that masters who were calmly administering punishment, in quotes, to correct, in quotes, lady subordinates. Reluctance, excuse me, lady subordinates' reluctance to work. Even white abolitionist critics of slavery and their heirs among the ranks of historians were reluctant to say that it was torture to be a bound victim with a weapon until the victim bled profusely and and did what was wanted or both. Perhaps one unspoken reason why many have been so reluctant to apply the term torture to slavery is that even though they denied slavery's economic dynamism, they, know, they knew that sleep on the cotton frontier made a lot of product. No one was willing, in other words, to admit that they lived in an economy whose bottom gear was torture. And this speaks to the entire deceptive nature of racism, white supremacy, and a lot of the times when we come across words that we think are seemingly benign, they really speak volumes to the types of uh, horrible conditions our ancestors were placed under, and it shows the deception of white people and the way that they changed things to suit the winds of white supremacy, no different than the historians call uh, Thomas Jefferson's rape of a 14-year-old Sally Heming- Hemings a uh, relationship rather than the rape of a child and, and, and pedophilia. It made me really think about that, just the wordplay. And um, there was a section where they talked about beating the good pickers more than the bad pickers, and it just made me think, like, you can't win for losers. You can break your back to a from sun, sun up. To um, turn, turn up to turn down, and no matter how good you you, you work for these people, they're still going to brutalize you and revel in it simply because they want to get as much out of you as possible, and they believe that through this this brutality and this uh this this culture of terrorism that that was the way to extract uh that kind of workload from human beings that they didn't even see as human beings. And I really thought about there was a section on page one forty one. That said, uh, for many Southern whites, flipping was a gateway form of violence that led to bizarrely creative levels of sadism. In the sources that documented the, the expansion of cotton production, you can find at one point or another, almost every product in New Orleans stores converted into an instrument of torture. Carpenters, tools, chains, cotton presses, hackles, hand saws, hoe handles, irons for branding, livestock, nails, pokers, uh, smoothing irons, single trees steel yards, and tongs. Every modern method of torture was used at one time or another, sexual humiliation, mutilation, electric shock, solitary confinement and stress positions, burning, and even waterboarding. And descriptions of runaways posted by enslavers were festooned with descriptions of scars, burns, mutilations, brands, and wounds. Yet even slave owners' more irrational forms of torture could have rational outcomes. As ex-slave Henry Goins pointed out, wild assaults, cramped down on the minds of their targets if they survived and other witnesses who now acted as much like hands as they could. This speaks to the whole concept of zombies that he he kept bringing up. Basically, it's amazing to me that you can literally brutalize the people into becoming two-legged beasts of burdens and, and basically zombie automatons for white supremacy and then blame those people for the misery that you put them in. And it also made me think of the fact that you when know, they kidnapped our ancestors, they didn't kidnap Africa's trash. They kidnapped scientists, warriors, doctors, even royalty. So I could imagine what it was like to be kidnapped for where you came from. I, I tried to imagine that and being, let's say, a doctor or a scientist and being brutalized like this into becoming a hand. Um, These people are just subhuman, just animalistic savages, and they're not people at all, in my opinion. And this, this book is just bringing it home in spades, excuse me, uh, I'm I to take that out, bring it home in a way that I just couldn't imagine. And um, one of the slaves on page 142 says they looked at people with heads and arms and legs and could see, could not see anything but cotton bales, an ex-slave said. And basically they just see us as a dollar bill. And, and when you speak about them using the term buck and not using the term buck, I've completely eradicated that out of my vocabulary simply because it's just me, like an extremely disrespectful term for my ancestors and just for myself as a black male. And um, also, I found it fascinating when uh, the section, the uh, chapter on tongues began, and they described the black male that was burying his son and the different rituals that he went through in, in regards to African traditional religion um, and burying his son and the different uh, elements that he put together. And uh, different things that he made to bury his child with, for him to travel to the world of the dead, and it just really made me think of the fact that in African spirituality, when blood is spilled on a in a space on the ground, is considered a basically a sacred space in a way that um, the, the earth remembers that brutality that was there, and they basically alluded to the fact that these Africans understood that uh, no matter what was going on, when our blood was spilled, that particular place, the land itself actually held the memory of that brutality, Um, which is why I think when a lot of people, those who have gone to like plantations and such, um, they get such visceral um, impressions from the land, from the the trees and all of these things because our ancestors innately understood our intimate connection to the planet and the fact that that life was sacred and especially the lives of our, our ancestors. Um, and then there was a section where they talked about a 148. It says one woman on jo- Joseph Shepherd's Mississippi plantation changed, changed her name to silent. Another sold off woman said she was no longer Sophia, but Sophia, nobody. And it goes on. But I thought about that. And I thought about, um, the origins of our self-effacement and us calling each other niggers and bitches and hoes and all the other things that we choose to call each other. And the fact that back then we were so brutalized and, and like, um, Thomas in New York and Mr. Demi Ford both spoke about, the PTSD had us to the point that we were completely demoralized and started to self-efface by changing our names because we understood that our lives meant absolutely nothing in a system of white supremacy. And this really speaks volumes because if it started back then, I think it's it's encoded in our Nigeria today, which is why it's so all-pervasive in all all of the things that we as black people partake in today, whether it's into any of the uh, 10 areas of people activity in that, in that, um, regard. And then there was another section that spoke about, uh, basically show offism where, uh, certain slaves went out and wanted to buy different things and they spoke in big terms as if, you know, um, they, they were unique. And, uh, to me that really speaks to what a lot of us do today. We try to act like, um, like where uh, men and women as far as being adults in this society, but in reality we're children, just like, uh, Dr. Welsing, Nathan I mean, Fuller Jr. Has, has spoken about for such a long time, and even back then, we were trying to find our, our dignity through possessions and our self-esteem through possessions, when in reality, it just takes us knowing ourselves and knowing our enemy more than anything else, and I think the lack of us knowing our enemy is why we're still in the position that we're in. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'll meet my line.
0: Uh, let's see, uh, caller in the Bay Area and retired firefighter. Both of y'all should be with us also. Did you have any comments you wanted to make sure you got in?
1: Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, super, thank you. Um, I, I just wanted, I, what stuck out for me in the book, um, all this brutal, it just made me believe that white people are just so barbaric by nature. They just don't have a soul. Because I'm listening to the reader, and it—I don't know if because when he words it, he says it like he'll say enslaved people, as if there were other people aside of black people that they were treating like this. And then, then again, he'll say black uh, black slaves, but it just seems like he just always says enslaved people to lead um, maybe readers to believe that all it wasn't just blacks; it was just people that were enslaved. But what stuck out for me. He made us well in the book. It stated uh, something similar because I'm not reading it. I'm driving. Something similar to the abuse that they endured was so severe that even the deities couldn't watch. So if if you if you're beating if you're that cold hearted that you're beating them like that to where a deity couldn't watch. You don't care about anything, and it just makes me believe that they'll never be anything different than what they are, even though they're excellent actors and actresses to pretend as if they have a heart. You can't, you can't, from what I'm listening to, even all the other slave uh, movies, books, um, that they um, share with us, this is too barbaric. You you can't, You you're not going to change. They're not going to change. They're going to stay the same. That's why they want to get uh, everything back in order, the order that it was back when the book was um, back from whatever he's um, writing the book from, back from back in slavery. They want it back to that. Nothing else makes sense. They're just barbaric. They're savages. And I apologize for name calling, but that's just how I, that's just, I don't have anything else to call them. So I'll, I'll mute my line because I'm driving and thank you for receiving my call.
0: Yes, ma'am. Retired, uh, firefighter. Did you have comments you wanted to add as well?
7: Yes, sir. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll be brief. Uh, uh, very interesting read as usual with this book. Uh, my, my thoughts have just been going to, uh, the manufactured, uh, items of, of terror and uh, torture and how uh, the, the, the total psych, uh, psychological effect on that to whereas it is still alive and well with victims of racial white supremacy to whereas it actually is transferred to where we do it to each other. Uh, even with people that we say that we care about, uh, I, uh, I can I can recall uh, at school. This was before uh, white kids were uh, in the uh, school, uh, where a coach, single coach of hundreds of of black kids in his physical education class would. Uh, uh, I think I heard something about manufactured uh, 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 weapons of torture. Well, his weapons of torture was a board with holes in it, which I'm sure something like that probably was used back during that time. And and what I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about is that that, that, that cult, the culture of torture and punishment actually transferred to to us. Whereas we would do it to to each other still today, and and, and even from a standpoint of assuming uh, uh, that a lot of this is positive, uh, there are people who swear by. Uh, I used to be bad, and and uh, this is what uh, brought me from being a behaved person, quote unquote, uh, and it's still, and I still hear that today as far as what is called uh, spankings or beatings or whatever. Uh, the, phrase, the phrase, which is very old, but I still hear it today, uh, I don't beat col- be clothes. Uh, it, it established the, the, sensual, the sensualness uh, of the origin of that, back during that time of the white slave master stripping the clothes off of the non-white person. Uh, there's something sensual about that in, in a, in a, uh, a very sadistic way. Uh, and it, it, still, it still takes place today. It still takes place today, even in the, uh, advent of our homes. Uh, and as I mentioned before, some people still today, the when they tell their life stories, uh, they swear by it and that's what brought them around. Uh, you know, uh, So that just tells me about from the advent of, of torture this, of this as the last call to say, the savagery that would, what was imposed upon us, uh, and the torture and the horror of it all. Uh, it, uh, it really has a deep, deep scar still lies within us, uh, from a cultural standpoint. Uh, uh, and that's why this book of steel is, is very relevant, very relevant, uh, because uh, we haven't uh, we haven't even come close, in my opinion, to to rid ourselves of of uh, uh, this this uh, sickness uh, uh, that that is uh, upon us. It's, it's only been refined, that's all. And uh, thank you for uh, thank you for listening.
0: For sure, for sure. Uh, quick comments, I'll uh, get in, uh, and then we'll see if we have time for other folks if they have any second comments or follow ups or questions uh, before we get to the second audio uh, segment. I guess the first thing uh, would be if anybody uh, feels like, you know, man, Gus, you, you know, had, were, were way more critical when we read Ta Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me, and now we're reading the suspected racist book, and you have not been nearly as, as critical uh, of this book. I definitely I will take that uh, no problem, Uh, although I definitely would say unequivocally, and we have not even read half of this book yet, that I think this is a much more constructive read than Between the World and Me. Uh, They might not even be accurate to compare because they're two very, very different types of books. And uh, Mr. Coates, I think, would say that this is uh, a constructive book. I have heard him say that he thinks a construct, He thinks that this is a, a constructive read as well. But uh, I'll definitely take that criticism if folks you know, feel like, hey, man, we're reading suspected racist book, and, and you uh, were way tougher on uh, Between the World and Me than the text that we are reading right now. Uh, the other quick comment I'll get in and then specific notes from this week's section of the reading, um, and it's very closely related to what we just heard from retired firefighter. The nonsense, and that's, that's the most polite term that I can use when I hear individuals say that, man, uh, black people, and I mean, I, white racists say this, but I hear a lot of black people say, hey, man, slavery made us super strong, super tough. That's why we are such a, a strong and powerful people, everything that we've had to endure. That is the biggest crock of nonsense. I've ever heard in my life and this I mean this is not the only book but I would certainly submit this as a book as a strong rebuke to that there are others uh the slave health deficit which was written by a black couple but it's just nonsense and I hear this all the time from people who have degrees these are not just you know folks that are out on the street uh drinking these are folks you know who have been to school and have read they you know seem to have some level of of understanding education and and they will say that like, yeah, this really made us tough. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just hearing what these people had to endure. You do not come through that healthy, mentally, physically, spiritually, no way shape, form, fashion. That being said, uh, some of the things that uh, stood out this week, just total disregard for uh, black humanity when they're talking about Black females took it especially hard uh, during this period of white supremacy because they didn't care. If you uh, are pregnant, if you're having any sort of gynecological problems, I don't care, nigga, get out there and pick. Uh, and if you can't do it, then, you know, you're going to be beaten. I think he kind of ended the text last week talking about that. Um, I just thought that that was especially uh, important. That was very early at the beginning. And even uh, where they talked about children, uh, we says women nursing babies in the shade where they had been laid, or toddlers among the cotton plants, all could become flashpoints for white fury. Uh, Gross has killed. Sook's youngest child wrote a white woman to her slave trader cousin. He took the child out to work. It was between one year and 18 months old, and because it would not do its work to please him, he first whipped it and then held its head in the creek to make it hush, crying. A one-year-old, 18-month-old child being black child being beaten and killed uh by some sadistic white racist i mean this is what we are talking about and nothing about this is going to make you strong as a parent because i endured this i'm i'm really strong and a super person now because i endured this or my grandparents uh, and my family my ancestors went through this um the meticulous of this all i think that that cannot be understated, uh, where they are calmly, methodically devising new means to mutilate and torture black people. Uh, That is, I mean, just astounding to think of someone sitting down calmly with a pen, a piece of paper at a table. Let me see if I can devise a contraption that will more efficiently lash my negros so I can get them to pay. I mean, that is... Astounding, And again, I just don't think that we generally think of racism, white supremacy in those ways where it's not someone just frothing at the mouth and nigger this, nigger that, but no, just sitting calmly and devising how we're going to go about torturing, dominating, terrorizing black people in even better and more cruel ways as we go. Um, Let's say I thought this was really important. Where he says sometimes fast workers tried to help slow ones, slower ones, by putting cotton in their baskets or taking their rows for a while. But enslavers usually made rules against cooperation and enforced uh, and enforced them instead. As minimums increased for all over time, entrepreneurs had exploiters forced individual enslaved people to marshal the forces of their own creativity against their own long-term health and independence and even against each other supremely important i didn't hear anybody this week indict any of the folks that we heard uh, charles ball or lydia or any of the other folks As being Sambos and Coons and Uncle Toms because they were doing this, because they weren't working with other black people, because they told on a black person. Everything about this applies now, I think, as retired firefighter and several other callers said, this has just been refined in terms of the way that racism, white supremacy Uh, operates now, 2016, uh, as opposed to what it was doing back then. But all of the power dynamics are still in effect, and that psychology, that psychopathic, sadistic psychology on the part of racist man, racist woman, has not changed. It is still there. But I think that's super important in terms of a, a key component of how this is set up. It's designed to see us not working against each other and for us to understand that do our best to work against that, but to understand that it's, it's all set up. We're supposed to be behaving in this manner against our own and collective self-interest as black people. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think you are already touched on the passage. They were talking about the uh, black female who did not want to do the cotton picking because it was so difficult. and She was always beaten. Um, I thought it was really important where he talked about the word torture and how it, this period uh, and what was done to us, our family, our ancestors was not described, isn't described as torture uh, on a widespread basis. I think that that is hugely important. Uh, Any of the films, when you think about uh, Roots, any of the books uh, that come out that are about this period and it's not presented as this is torture and it's certainly not as methodical in terms of the details that you're that we're getting from uh, from this book but I think that's hugely important in just the language the way that it's used. We're not talking about disciplined a uh, lashing. We're talking about just the most savage and increasing means of torturing people. I, exactly. I don't remember which caller it was but it uh, might have been Mr. Dermy for uh, Abu Ghraib. Uh, when they talk about torture and what's happening down there this just sounds like, hey, we get to continue and do what our ancestors, our great granddads and grandpappies Ah uh, we're doing. We get to continue the family tradition of stomping on particularly black people but non white people uh on the whole. Um let's see, the push in. I'm I think it might even be interesting and folks who have the book if you want to get the uh check out some of the footnotes where he gets some of this information from, some of the diaries that people wrote about this time period might be interesting to check out what some of the black people who experienced all this, what they uh their first hand account of all this would be. Um let's see whipping, fry, even the language When this is a direct quote where he says uh, uh, they had a Louisiana let me make sure I get the whole sentence Bennett Barrow, owner of a slave labor camp in West Valencia Parish Louisiana kept a journal that he called his record of punishment <laughs> scientific. Terrorists. And he says in this ledger with records, both whipping and picking barrel revealed how he calibrated torture. Three quarters of the 1840 through 1841 instances of torture were directed at those who did not meet their weight. And I think uh, Roz already already commented on you can't win, even if you are one of the best pickers. It says where those were the people that got the most beatings, the ones who, who did the fastest picking. Uh, we read 12 Years a uh, Slave with Solomon Northrup and Patsy uh, a few years back. and get that in the archives. Um, the whole concept of, of being totally divorced from your body, I think we've even talked about that present day uh, because we're so victimized, uh, just being totally dominated all areas of people activity where you end up just becoming very numb, very desensitized, uh, not just to other black people and their suffering, but even to yourself. Uh, just being disconnected in this zombie state that he's talked about a few times during the course of the book. I thought that was very important as well. And I see a lot of that that continues right on uh, to this day. And as, again, as a part of the racist uh, design, um, the significance, I thought, where he says uh, Captain Davis, the father of James Fisher's Alabama owner, carried a whip he named the Negro Ruler." I uh, think folks will recall when we had Norm Stamper on the program, a uh, former Seattle chief of police, where he said uh, he was told by a, a training white officer, don't forget your nigger knocker, when talking about his uh, nightstick. I mean, <laughs> 18, 19, 2016, same thing. Um, but just the, the way that they described this in detail, it reminded me, even the, the text that we read yesterday, how I shed my skin when Mr. Jim Grimsley admitted racist, when he went into explicit and I mean excruciating detail about the use of the word nigger. And it was ubiquitous and nigger rigging, uh, in a nigger house and food is so bad a nigger wouldn't eat it. And uh, I mean, just long, long, long description of how this was all over the place. Church, everywhere they went, this is the way it was done. The, the description that he gave of all of the implements of torture and terrorism that were, put into use against black people i just that is astounding uh just to see it. and who are the people that are making money from this who just imagining the white people that are sitting down that are coming up with these inventions or selling these devices using these to just imagine that sort of mind that's what we're talking about i just don't think that we we get that uh, i think we get very confused when we get presentations we got to talk about this period and you have to talk about john brown and you have to talk about harriet beecher stowe as though there were good quality whites that were not sadistics uh, in this manner. uh, It's just false. And that's one of the things that I've emphasized consistently as we've gone along that you had cohesion, cohesion, white cohesion around this to say, Hey, we're all making money. We're not fighting with each other. We are coming together as a collective, as a unit around torturing Negras and making them go out and work and make us this money, get this cotton, get this rum, get this tobacco, get this sugar cane. We are coming up as a unit, as a team worldwide, team white, all based on the torture and terrorism of black people. Um, let's see what else really stood out. Tongues. We didn't really get that to, uh, far into this one, so I'm sure there'll be more uh, to speak on from this chapter as we uh, move along. Um, yeah, I thought it was really important. I think Mr. Demery for commented the enslaved black female who said that she uh just had a difficult time even going to uh to the market for meat because she had been so traumatized by the weighing of cotton um uh, this was from chapter five uh on tongue recess after weighing up some might become friends others already planned to be enemies one man might see in another a competitor for a woman and in a woman a conquest, a woman in turn might see another woman as a rival. Small rewards of money or favor convince captives to abandon incipient solidarity. William Anderson complained that slaves are sometimes great enemies to each other, telling tales, lying, catching fugitives, and the like. All this is perpetuated by ignorance, oppression, and degradation. When another captive saw Anderson, who had recently been transported from Virginia to Mississippi, eating a stolen fowl, he ran and told the overseer that William was eating up all the chickens on the place. Anderson got 100 lashes. Didn't hear anybody label him as a coon, Uncle Tom, <laughs> any of the other uh, ter- I mean, Again, this is A victim of white supremacy. This is what victims do. Uh, And if anything, again, you see those same dynamics uh, playing out today. I think one of the 10 stops stop snitching uh, to try to break this behavior pattern uh, that has been really as a result of torture uh, ingrained in us over many, many, many years. Uh, I think that was already brought up as well about the uh, epigenetic aspect about how this impacts uh, not just one generation but can be passed down for many, many uh, generations and again, we're still going through this stuff it's just refined in a different form Um, I think with that I will pause. I had some other things highlighted but I think I'll stop there um yeah, I think I'll stop there and see if anybody else has anything they want to make sure they get in before the second audio segment. We have maybe three, four minutes, so if you could be quick, uh, if you have anything you want to add.
2: Yes, can I be heard?
0: Uh, go ahead, Mr. Demi I heard the other person as well. Go ahead, Mr. Demi
2: Okay, I want to mention Elijah, her desire to commit suicide. Um, and the others trying to assist her in continuing with her life, you know, probably caused by physical and or sexual abuse, depression from a loss of hope, and witnessing other suicidal behaviors. You know, in the book talked about chronic uh, pain, uh, hands that had gnawed themselves into claws, which was probably uh, severe arthritis. And the last thing i mention is uh, the caller from Florida reminded me of the uh, way punishment was exacted on high school students, a board with holes in it. And our principal at our school use that, and he even had a name for it called the Board of Education. I'll mute my line.
0: Mr. Thomas uh, in New York. Thomas in New York, if you had a quick comment before we get to the second audio segment. Yes, sir. Um. Wow.
5: Um. had a quick one because on when you were um, doing your little speech there on Gus, and you talked about you know the type of people that would sit down and think of a torture device, and uh, when I met up with Ross for the first time, you know, I showed him this article um, on Google, you know, pigs, weevils, and rats were on trial in the Middle Ages. And weevils are these little beetles, like little flying bugs. And um, they put them on trial. I mean, they actually stand trial. And he had commissioned someone to make a torture device for the weevils in case they lost. So this is nothing new to them. You know, this is just... They, they, they've been doing this for years, you know. Like their savagery, and I'm glad that the lady called them savages because that's what they are. It, it goes back um, way deeper than than we think it is. You know, slavery is that's just new stuff to them. They were way worse before then. And I'll meet my line.
0: Can I get um? I mean. The audio is like 36. So I'm trying to make sure we have. I'm trying to make sure everybody has okay. time. Then, uh, can you can you write okay. it down? Can you just make a note and then sure, yeah, I do that. No problem. Beautiful. Uh, we will get cracking. Uh, second audio segment, chapter five. Hopefully, everybody will have ample time to share uh, once this audio segment uh, is done. The half has never been told. Edward Baptist, context of white supremacy.
4: During the first two decades of the 19th century. Tens of thousands of settlers from Virginia and Kentucky moved west of the Mississippi and north of what is now the state of Louisiana. The part of the country where the Missouri, the Mississippi, and the Ohio mingle the waters of half a continent and head south towards New Orleans rests on a major geological fault line, which in 1811 shifted and destroyed the important Mississippi River port of New Madrid. But the Missouri Territory, as the region was now called, also rested atop another confluence of opposing forces. To the Northeast lay the new state of Illinois, ostensibly free by virtue of its inclusion in the 1780s-era Northwest Territory, but in reality settled in part by Southerners, who used a loophole in the state's law to hold African Americans in slavery. In 1821, in fact, those settlers would attempt to rewrite the Illinois State Constitution to permit large-scale human bondage. To the north and west and south of Missouri, meanwhile, lay the vast Louisiana Purchase. Only one section of this area, Louisiana, had yet become a state. The status of the remaining 800,000 square miles was undecided. By December 1818, when a petition from the Missouri Territory's whites reached Congress for statehood, those settlers had established a thriving agricultural economy in the valleys west of St. Louis, one based on tobacco hemp for cordage and sailcloth, and corn. And, of course, slaves. More than 10,000 enslaved African Americans lived in Missouri. Now Missourians were asking Congress to admit their territory as a state. So Congress took up the issue. Beginning with Kentucky in 1795, Congress had now admitted five slave states west of the mountains and south of the Ohio. Perhaps... Given the growing anxiety among good northern Republican soldiers like John Quincy Adams, no one should have been surprised by what Representative James Talmadge of New York said when he stood up in Congress on February 13, 1819. But they were surprised. For Talmage proposed two amendments to the Missouri Statehood Bill. The first banned the importation of more slaves into Missouri, the second, proposed to free all enslaved people born in the new state once they reached 25. And here's what might have surprised even savvy observers. As the clerk of the House counted the votes, it became clear that heavy northern support had passed Talmadge's amendments over universal southern opposition. Some in the free states clearly feared that they were becoming mere junior partners in the government of the United States. They were choosing to draw a line, though not against slavery itself or against the kind of slavery from which they profited most. Missouri was too far north for cotton to grow. Still, for the first time since the Congress had affirmed the Northwest Ordinance in 1789, a House of the National Legislature had blocked slavery's expansion. In the Senate, matters were different. Over the previous decade, Congress had been admitting states in pairs, retaining a rough balance between North and South in the Senate. The Southern Senators turned back the House's bill and struck the anti-slavery clauses. In response, the House rejected the Senate's version of the Missouri statehood bill. And as speeches grew more heated, John Quincy Adams realized that they disclosed a secret, a subterranean fault line, the fact that almost all Northern representatives would, if pushed to the test, vote against more slavery expansion. Meanwhile, Southern representatives were deciding that the right to expand slavery was inseparable from any other right that they possessed. John Scott, the non-voting delegate from Missouri, insisted that restriction would deny Missouri whites their constitutional right to property. The right to expand was even the right of self-preservation. If slavery restriction blocked further expansion, Southern representatives wailed, slave numbers would balloon until a black rebellion erupted making a giant Haiti of the southern states. Thomas Cobb of Georgia warned that the friction of slavery restriction was kindling a fire which all the waters of the ocean could not extinguish. It could only be extinguished in blood. In the face of Cobb's implied threat of civil war, New York's Talmadge replied, that if blood is necessary to extinguish any fire which I have assisted to kindle, I shall not forbear to contribute my might. Back and forth the debate went, but when the spring session of Congress ended, nothing had been resolved. Congressmen from New York and New Jersey returned home to find that a flurry of public meetings were in progress, supporting their anti-slavery expansion stance. In such meetings, some constituents raised questions that went beyond mere sectional advantage. Wasn't slavery a contradiction? asked the organizers of a New York meeting. To the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? But opposition to slavery itself was not what brought most white attendees to those meetings, and the idea of black equality would have been anathema to almost all of them. In contrast to the abolitionist groups that would emerge years later, socially conservative Federalists led these meetings. These old and prominent ministers, these long-established philanthropists, brooked little or no input from African Americans. Instead, most of the complaints voiced by such meetings were about sectional power balances. By the time William Plumer of New Hampshire was on his way back to Congress for the next session, he believed it had become political suicide for a free state politician to tolerate slavery beyond its present limits. Further concessions would make America a mighty empire of slaves dominated by arrogant planter politicians. The group that joined Plumer in the Capitol during the early winter of 1819 was a new Congress, elected in 1818. In the 13 months between the time of their election and the time of their seating —lame ducks lasted much longer in those days— a major financial crisis had erupted. The Panic of 1819 embroiled the administrators of the Second Bank of the United States in scandals that demanded legislative attention. But the debate over Missouri continued, too. Even though Kentucky Representative and Speaker of the House Henry Clay was working behind the scenes with a middle group of congressmen from both free and slave states, trying to organize a compromise, tempers on the floor of the House grew more and more heated. Rumors whispered that congressmen were carrying pistols into debate. John Quincy Adams, a New Englander in a Southern administration, trying to focus on his negotiations to acquire Florida from Spain, had assured an audience in the summer of 1819 that he believed the restriction of Missouri slavery was unconstitutional. But while negotiations dragged on into February 1820, and as Monroe used the power of the executive to lean on Northern Republicans to break from the slavery restriction ranks, Adams had a startling late afternoon conversation with Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, a South Carolinian. Calhoun predicted that the Missouri crisis would not produce a dissolution of the Union. But if it should, Calhoun continued, the South would of necessity be compelled to form an alliance with Great Britain. I said that would be returning to the colonial state, replied the shocked Adams, who remembered two wars with the old empire. He said, yes, pretty much, but it would be forced upon them. Adams fell silent. But in his diary, his pen wrote thoughts that his voice was afraid to breathe. If the dissolution of the Union should result from the slave question, it is as obvious as anything that it must be shortly afterward followed by the universal emancipation of the slaves. For slavery is the great and foul stain upon the North American Union. The opportunity of war would mean that the Union might then be reorganized on the fundamental principle of emancipation. This object is vast in its compass, awful in its prospects. Sublime and beautiful in its issue. A life devoted to it would be nobly spent or sacrificed. Yet, just like Calhoun and all the other cabinet men, Adams was thinking not of self sacrifice, but of the election of 1824, Monroe's retirement, and his own possible candidacy for president. In public, his tongue stayed silent on this issue, for now. And by early 1820, Clay could offer the House an already-passed Senate bill that admitted Missouri as a slave state and added Maine, sectioned from the northern coastlands claimed by Massachusetts, as a free state to keep the Senate balanced. The bill also barred any more slave states from being carved out of the Louisiana Purchase above 36 degrees 30 minutes north latitude, essentially Missouri's southern border. The southern senators thought this deal gave up little of practical importance, One could not grow cotton and sugar in the Dakotas. When Free State representatives in the House shot down the Combined Compromise Bill, Clay divided it into separate Missouri statehood and restriction line bills. Then Southerners, plus a few Northerners, voted for Missouri statehood, with slavery, while Northerners passed the 36 degrees, 30-minute restriction line. At last, the crisis was over. With the Missouri statehood issue, the expansion of slavery had been presented as a stark choice, one uncomplicated, for instance, by the desire to bring Louisiana into the Union so that European empires could no longer block national expansion. Northern politicians had united almost instantaneously against it. The shock of this opposition helps explain, perhaps, why Southern politicians reacted with their own startling level of emotion and threats of secession. The southern forces in Washington had relied on the Senate's balance between free state and slave state delegates to accomplish further expansion, and those who took a calculating view understood that northern money, especially that represented by New Englanders, who had lagged behind the anti-expansion zealots, was unlikely to slap away the hand that fed it. Merchant elites who depended on the shipping trade still dominated New England politics. While some Southerners might complain that a wall of Spanish territory to the west of Louisiana now blocked further expansion, the Compromise dealmaker, Clay, thought he could add Spanish Texas to the adams onis Treaty, which already ensured that enslavers would get Florida. He wasn't able to do so, but Southern leaders like President James Monroe still believed that Texas would inevitably fall to the United States. And many, both North and South, now thought that the Missouri Compromise, as it came to be known, had established a precedent of dividing the West between free and slave territory. They would come to refer to the Compromise as a sacred compact. The Missouri controversy caused many Southern enslavers to become overly sensitive to future criticism. Northern opposition to the expansion of slavery, however, dissipated when the crisis was over. Before 1819, there had been no such thing as an organized opposition to slavery or its expansion among Northern whites. After 1821, Northern whites returned to ignoring the rights of African Americans or the consequences of slavery and its expansion for the enslaved. The few Northern whites who recognized that slavery raised important moral issues, issues that went beyond the question of whether it was a stain on the national honor, did not act, but rather cast off upon Georgia men or other bad actors the moral weight of slavery's expansion. Moral discomfort and political interest did not coalesce into a lasting opposition to expansion. Indeed, by 1821, some Southern leaders were realizing that they would have little trouble creating winning interregional coalitions that allowed for further exploitation of enslaved African Americans so long as they could make a claim that their policies supported increased democracy among whites. Northerners were doing their best to give that impression, at any rate. For instance, even as the ink dried on the Missouri bills, New York was holding a state constitutional convention. In the new document they created, delegates who wanted to undermine the power of the state's traditional elites eliminated property requirements for white men who wanted to vote, but increased the barriers for black men. By the early 1820s, it was simply the case in the United States that enslaved people could look to no one but themselves for help. And yet they were outnumbered and outgunned, so rebellion and direct resistance would lead only to certain defeat. They would have to change their world in different ways, but even building from within presented problems. Forced migration, which atomized groups and erased identities, required enslaved migrants to create new ties to each other in the constantly changing places where they found themselves. That would not be easy. But people, and indeed the world, can change, from things as invisible and acts as ephemeral as words on the wind. One Thursday evening in October, sometime around 1820, a Kentucky enslaver named Taylor waited on his porch. Between his barn and his house waited a huge pile of corn in the husk which needed to be prepared for storage in his barn. Soon he heard muffled sounds, groups of enslaved men and women converging through the woods from their owner's property, singing as they came to shuck his corn. In one of those columns was Francis Frederick, who in 1863 recorded what happened on that night four decades before. And at the head of his line strutted the night star, a tall, quick-witted young man named Reuben. Reuben's cap bristled with sticks and feathers. Decorations for the chosen champion of friends and cabin mates who planned to test their skill and heart in a competition to see which gang could shuck Taylor's corn most swiftly. Soon scores of men poured into the firelit circle where the corn lay heaped, while women moved around the edges to form an audience. The men who knew each other traded jokes and gave sizing-up glances to new ones. Reuben and another captain huddled to decide the ground rules. Then the selected pair chose up sides, who divided the corn pile in two. Taylor handed each captain the all-important jug of liquor. With a rush, the men dived in, grabbing ears and pulling off the shucks while each captain leapt to the top of the pile and, turning to his team, took center stage. His job was to lead and encourage his team by making up humorous, catchy verses that the team would then repeat or answer even as they, in ceaseless motion, pulled off shucks "'toss the naked ears into the clean pile "'and pass the jug. "'In corn-chucking competitions, "'captains sung out rhymes "'that ridiculed other enslaved people, "'present or absent, by name or by implication. "'Dark cloud arising like it going to rain, "'nothing but a black gal coming down the lane. "'Which dark-skinned woman steamed up with anger "'or sneered with contempt at these sour grapes?' "'Other lyrics took different risks, "'slyly chanting half-praise of an owner.' Still others talked politics, in ways palatable to some owners, but rankling to partisans of the other side. Polk and Clay went to war. Polk came back with a broken jaw. Some even criticized, for those who had ears to hear, the speculator bought my wife and child. This was a slow, dragged out verse. And carried her clear away. Or they demanded more of the liquor that fueled the long night labor of shucking. Boss man, boss man, please give me my time. Boss man, boss man, for I'm most broke down. They worked on past midnight. Whiskey flickered in their bellies and laughter roared, keeping them warm despite the chilly fall air. The smell of the ox roasting a few dozen yards away urged on the rings of grabbing, tearing men. The piles shrank. The captain's hoarse voices sped the rhythm. At two in the morning, Reuben's band frenetically Triumphantly, shucked their last ears and rushed to surround the others, sweating circle, waving their hats and singing to the defeated, "Oh, oh, fie for shame!" But the shame did not sting for long. For now, behind Reuben, they all marched down to Taylor's house. He waited there on the porch with his wife and daughter. The enslaved men crowded around it and sang one last time to Reuben's lead. "I've just come to let you know, men, oh, 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 Captain." The upper end has beat. Men, oh, oh, oh. Captain, I'll bid you fare you well. Men, oh, oh, oh. Captain, for I'm going back again. Men, oh, oh, oh. Then they all went back together to shuck the last ears in the losing team's pile, after which all the corn shuckers sat down at long tables to feast. The fun and local fame that enslaved people won at such occasions were as fleeting as the meal. Two weeks later, 30 of the men who shucked corn at Taylor's on that night were sold to buyers who were now, in the late 1810s, beginning to comb Kentucky every December. Reuben was among the first dragged from his family, recalled Frederick. My heart is full when I think of his sad lot. Yet even as raw memories of his own sale from Virginia flooded his thoughts, Frederick could not forget Reuben's night of triumph. The way he had led more than one hundred men with virtuosity of wit and artistry of tongue. For that night, those three hundred men had all ridden on his gift despite everything that hung over them. And Reuben had soared highest of all. Here is something that is no accident. The most popular and creative genres of music in the history of the modern world emerged from the corners of the United States where enslavers power battered enslaved African Americans over and over again. In the place Reuben was being dragged to, and in all the places where forced migration's effects were most dramatic and persistent, music could not prevent a whipping or feed a single hungry mouth. But it did serve the enslaved as another tongue, one that spoke what the first one often could not. Music permitted a different self to breathe, even as rhythm and melody made lines on which the common occasions of social life could tether like beads. Times like corn shuckings when people sang and played and danced, became opportunities for people to meet. There they mourned, redeemed, and resurrected sides of the personality that had been devastated by forced migration. On such occasions, and perhaps even more so on Saturday nights when whites weren't watching, people animated by music and by each other fought and acted and rediscovered themselves as truly alive, as people who mattered for their unique abilities and contributions, as people in a common situation who could celebrate their own individuality together. Back in Maryland, Josiah Henson's father had played a banjo made from a gourd, wood, and string. This African instrument, Henson remembered, was the life of the farm, and all night long at a merrymaking would he play on it while the other Negroes danced. But around 1800, Josiah's father ran afoul of his owner, who had the man's ear severed in punishment. Deformed and angry, the maimed man let his banjo fall silent. Soon the owner sold him south, far away from Josiah. What was his after fate, neither my mother nor I ever learned, Henson wrote decades later. But any southwestward course was likely to drain a man down into the great trap of New Orleans. In 1819, as white people began to shout and threaten each other over Missouri, a visitor wandered on a Sunday to the open space on the northern border of the French Quarter. Today, the maps call this place Louis Armstrong Park. The visitor had already heard it referred to as Congo Square. He saw men drumming in a circle while a wizened elder played a banjo. Two women danced in the middle while squalling out a burthen into the playing at intervals. In the 1830s, William Wells Brown, then an enslaved employee of a slave trader, found Congo Square still thundering with African drumming. In each corner, a different African nation—the Minas, the Fulas, the Congos—played their own music and danced their own dances, while others watched, nodded heads, and jumped in. Drums sped and slowed, talking and rhythms brought thirty years before from beyond the salt water. Dancers wove patterns that talked, too. If Henson's father had come there, he might have realized that he and they sang in the same family language so perhaps he would have picked up his banjo again. Long-lost relatives had much to teach him and others from the Chesapeake and Carolinas, where the drum had long been outlawed, and Southeastern migrants had much to teach immigrants from Africa or the Caribbean. The surging patterns of soft fiddle and plunging banjo and the stripped-down, charging syncopation of their music were innovations produced over the course of 200 hard years in the New World. Southeastern migrants' own personal experiences of exile and movement within the country spread and then transformed their performance styles again. One 1800s writer claimed that the Virginian Negro character, therefore, has come to prevail throughout the slave states, and that everywhere you may hear much the same songs and tunes and see much the same dances. Virginia's exiles now sang about what made them no longer Virginians. Their songs evoked the traumas of separation in a modernizing society in musical ways more complex than words alone could achieve. Traveling through the South, wrote an early white commentator on 19th-century African-American music, you may, in passing from Virginia to Louisiana, hear the same tune a hundred times, but seldom the same words. This necessarily results from the habit of extemporizing, in which the performers indulge on festive occasions. Only one thing about these performances was fixed, that they were not to be fixed. Instead, they mixed together even well-known components of rhythm, melody, lyrics, and motion in fresh ways. So, for instance, from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., Reuben had kept his footing on the pile of corn because he had trained for it. He had gained, under the tutelage of peers and elders, the ability to sing a song that he continually made up and revised and created all over again. In the 19th century, white European and American authors began to claim that they had become uniquely individualistic, modern, not bound to repeat the old, and the modern Western world did not seem to be celebrating the individual. Think of Walt Whitman, singing a song not about the greatness of the tradition he'd been handed, but of himself. By the time Reuben sat chained to the deck of the slave trader's flatboat on his way from Kentucky to Louisiana every state he floated past had opened up voting to almost every individual white man. Hence Whitman's song to himself, and the celebration of the self and of American individualism, which would be emphasized over the coming century in white art forms. When white people wrote about black culture in the 19th century, however, and often when they have written since, they placed African American art forms with the traditional cultures of the pre-modern world, which supposedly did not have a concept of the autonomous self. White people's accounts depicted black dancers and singers as acting on tradition or even instinct, rather than attributing individual genius to them. And these accounts served as just-so stories that had the added benefit of implicitly justifying slavery. Whites explained their own attraction to enslaved people's music by crediting African Americans with unusual powers of imitation, the primitive ability to forget the self in Bacchanalian revels. By the late 19th century, whites believed, as many still do, such quasi-biological myths, that African-descended peoples had a natural, biologically innate, unchanging common response to rhythm. But it was enslaved African-Americans who were the true modernists, the real geniuses. The innovation that flooded through the quarters of frontier labor camps in the first 40 or 50 years of the 19th century was driven by constant individual creativity in the quarter's tongues. In the real world, in which people like Reuben were trying to survive, individual creativity improved and enslaved African Americans' chance of survival, and not just by enabling him or her to find a faster way to pick a pound of protection from the whip. Skillful words made one valuable to self and peers. They helped the enslaved to see themselves not as hands but as voices. And being a voice, recognized by one's peers, gave one a reason to live. So no wonder music and dancing on slavery's frontier emphasized individual improvisation, not imitation, and not unison. No wonder that at corn shuckings, at log rollings, and at every Saturday night party, people swept from every mooring by slavery's westward rolling tsunami sought moments like the ones that seared the memory of Reuben into the folds of Francis Frederick's brain. They strove to loose their tongues from fear and anxiety, so that they could do something that marked them as unique, their words and steps as novel, themselves as worthy of their peers' respect. There always came a space in the gathering and a moment in the song where, like Reuben, the individual performer did his or her unique thing. And then the performer's peers reveled in his or her triumph, while all the peoples, said Hattie Ann Nettles, cut the high step, young and old, man and woman. For not everyone was a virtuoso. But in contrast to the vast majority of whites, no one was a specialist non-performer. Everyone could sing and dance in the circle. Anyone willing to try could jump in the middle of a ring. Women and men both took the center. As was the case wherever African Americans gathered together in the young United States, not even the men expected the women to be modest and retiring. You jumped and I jumped. Swear by God you outjumped me, sang out the man at the corn shucking. The workers, laughing with a man laughing at himself, sang back, Ha ha, round the corn, Sally. Sally was a name from a song but maybe Sally's stand-in danced while the men recognized that her boldness might outjump that of her husband or lover. Other women earned the reputation of the fastest gal on the bayou by dancing down, one man after another, in the center of the floor. Liza Jane was alive on every dance floor. Of course, if one could not hold the stage, someone else would break in, riffing on the songs as they sang them, even in the chorus, even familiar songs with known names like Virginie Nigger Very Good. Listeners and singers at the corn chuckings disdained song leaders who stuttered or ran out of rhymes. The tongues of the enslaved learned to keen or growl or laugh their songs a different way each time through. This was very different from white music and white people's songs, which stuck to the same lyrics for decades. White musical ensembles played one rhythm at a time, Their dancers followed steps that might as well have been painted on the floor. White musical culture was a formation that approved those who marched in time. Black culture was a ring, with space in the middle for anyone willing to try his or her step. And by nourishing, practicing, and training themselves in improvisation, enslaved masters of innovation learned to think creatively as new demands and new dangers emerged. To the extent that they could institutionalize anything while living in the midst of white-created chaos, enslaved African-Americans made the encouragement of creative individual performance the center of gatherings. At Saturday night dances, when a brash nigga boy cut a cute bunch of steps, the menfolk would give him a dime or so, even though dimes were scarce. Dimes earned in that way, and the love implied by them, had taught Reuben as a boy, had taught him to teach himself. Their equivalent kept teaching him as a man. At the corn shucking, it was his peers, the ring, who sang the bass to guide and bear him up. Even his rivals were the steel on which he sharpened himself. And it was no foregone conclusion that enslaved migrants would support each other in this process, that they would form a ring and clap, or sing the bass from which others could improvise. Their traumas could have made them too selfish, too arrogant, too amoral, too self-isolating. They were desperately poor. Enslavers teased them with stolen abundance. On Sunday mornings, remember George Strickland of his boyhood in Alabama, they, white folks, would give us biscuits for breakfast, which was so rare that we'd try to beat the others out for theirs. Children fought for the taste of white flour, to the laughter of enslavers, and some enslaved people, old enough to know better, acted much the same when the music started. Yet, in musical and social rituals that played out as rings surrounding a changing cast of innovators, enslaved people chose to act in ways that reinforced a sense of individual independence through the reality of mutual interdependence. And those choices mattered. Music can do things to our emotions, our thoughts, and our bodies in ways that analysis of the words of a song like Liza Jane cannot encompass. Those were the things about music that could and did save lives. Cold metal shackles now bound Reuben's hands, and he sat silent on the flatboat as the shoreline scrolled by him. But in his tongue, his memory, his spirit, and his spine were well-honed tools. In Louisiana, Reuben would wield once again his power to adapt old songs to new situations, to call out emotions, to urge his co-participants to merge with and play off each other's voices and rhythms in greater collective effort that also allowed space for individuals to shine. What they did for themselves would do for him as well. For people made into commodities had a desperate need to resist the ways in which the rapidly changing world treated them like faceless units. Many had the creative capacity to do it, just as many had the creativity to survive the ever-increasing demands made on hands in the field. Eventually, white bohemian communities of artists in Paris and New York and San Francisco would build on Whitman's ideals of individualism by trying to make life into art and vice versa. But they trailed behind Reuben in many ways, and his depths were deeper. His powers of observation and creation were more powerful, for he knew the weight of iron on his wrists. He drew on the old and the new more effectively, for change had cost him a price the white Bohemians might never comprehend. Nor could the man or woman who was about to buy him understand. And southwestern enslavers who compelled performance, such as the enslavers who forced marching coffles of captives to sing as they marched southwest in the slave trade, even found themselves the objects of ironic imitation. The circle became an opportunity for in-jokes, for sheltering together from the white stare, for facing outward together in defense. The circle, of course, became all the more fascinating to whites as it grew more impenetrable. Whites' belief that there was a distinct Negro music helped shape another commodity, this one something that some whites wanted to possess and inhabit as a put-on self. It began with a few black performers who had made their way to the North as sailors on cotton vessels. They became a sensation in New York's working-class theaters, playing their banjos, singing, dancing, and clapping rhythms with their hands and feet. In the increasingly fast-paced and novelty-seeking culture of commercializing cities, the impact of black performance was shocking yet entrancing. White men, including many working-class ones who had worked in the South as functionaries of the expanding cotton empire, began to imitate and demonstrate what they had learned on the Ohio River or in New Orleans. Former cotton gin mechanics flatboat pilots, and apprentice clerks sang, bucked, and jived while frailing their banjos in the most authentic way, often while, weirdly, blacked up, playing Negro. It was very strange for such white men to sing, "Oh Susanna, Don't You Cry For Me, the story of an enslaved man trying to find his true love who'd been taken to New Orleans, when the losses of a million Susannas made jobs for such white men. But as these white imitators created the minstrel show genre and O Susanna, the most popular song of 1847 to 1848, made Stephen Foster the nation's first professional songwriter, blackface became the quintessential American popular entertainment of the 19th century. Blackface also became the archetypal model for how non-black performers would sell a long series of innovations created by enslaved migrants and their descendants, ragtime, jazz, blues, country, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, soul and hip-hop, to a white market. From that time forward, many whites saw African-American song and dance as mere instinct and have not understood that it is really deep art in control of complex passion. That art took shape in the creation of new ways to talk and to sing and to dance. It took shape on the cotton frontier and it took shape in the loss and transcendence that lies 700 miles deep in the words of Old Virginia Never Tire, a song first sung by men and women whose personal histories pivoted around the endlessly repeated march from Virginia to the New Ground. But over time, iterations and recombinations of what enslaved migrants created on the cotton and sugar frontiers gave birth to American and then global popular music. Musical elements from African cultural traditions surely explain some of this appeal. But what African Americans did to always make these roots new on slavery's frontiers made this musical tradition uniquely attractive.
0: Context of white supremacy. Uh, We are all done for this week, but we will be back next week. We are... Uh, About 40% of the way through the book, so we probably have about five, six more sessions, uh, probably about six, six to seven more sessions uh, to go before we'll be done. But getting close to the halfway point, again, hope it's uh, constructive for folks who are following along. If you would like to chime in, share any thoughts, the number to dial is 641-715-3640, the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us uh mr dermy four uh raz caller in the bay area a uh, firefighter in Florida, and Thomas in New York. Uh, appreciate Roz being uh, patient at the end there. If you want to start things off for the second audio segment with uh, what you wanted to get in before we uh, concluded.
6: Oh, sure. Thank you so
0: much, um, Gus. I appreciate that.
6: Um, yeah, there's a couple things I wanted to talk about before, but the main thing was I thought about what Mr. Demi Ford said in the very, very beginning about uh, reading these types of books, and it really made me think, um, simply because uh, Dr. John Henry Clark said in like the late 80s, early 90s, that the educational system in this country was geared towards getting Africans to accept their own enslavement And I believe that these books are also manuals for these uh, modern, so-called modern white people, so that uh, when they do choose to go back to that way, because I see that coming, I think Dr. Wilson... In her remarks and, and and to us studying what happened to the Jews, because that's everything is happening to us and has been that is happening to them. Um, I think these are also manuals. Books like uh, Ben Tillman. All of these books are basically manuals for white people as to what they're supposed to do when whites make their uh, move to turn back the hands of time and do whatever they are going to decide to do to us on a mass scale. Um, another thing I thought about too was uh, just how much we learn to brutalize ourselves from white people when, um, I think it was, uh, Mr. Before the firefighter in Florida was speaking about the, uh, the different tools of torture that these, these creatures were making. Um, it made me think of some of the beatings I got from my own mother, where she would, you know, basically grab anything. If it was a, you know, a pot spoon, a table leg, a high heel shoe, whenever, you know, she was angry at me, um, to beat me. And that there's no other way of describing it. And um, after going through all of that for quite a bit of my young life, I remember um, I decided not to put my hands on my son. And he's now 20, and I've never had to put my hands on him. He's always been the type of child that listens um, and would respond to conversation rather than any sort of physical aggression. And um, it just really speaks to how much we've been so conditioned to torture one another um, because we're we're not— we're not able to effectively combat racism and white supremacy and get at the root of the problem, which is white people. Then I thought about the section in which uh, he talked about Charles Ball being taken in by the black family. And I really saw that as an expression of black self-respect um, just the fact that Charles Ball was able to become uh, basically a member of the family and help help them in, in many different ways as far as surviving as one unit. And to me, it felt like the author was practicing racism as if he was trying to downplay these connections that were made between black people during this time. Um and I think that that's very incorrect simply because with the kind of uh with the kind of stress that we were under, yes, there were quite a few of us that were highly anti black, but there were quite a few of us who really understood the communal nature of African cultural expression and they latched onto that. And it kind of reminded me when I was growing up with my grandmother, um, in Trinidad, when she would cook and stuff, she would make enough food me to go to all the different elderly ladies in the neighborhood and drop off food for them which made me think of what um charles bolt did as far as contributing to the family unit and being taken in as one of them now for so the section that we were reading um i thought about there's a section of uh, a short part, uh, part on page 155 that says um thomas cobb of georgia warned that the friction of slavery restriction was kindling a fire that all the waters of the ocean could not extinguish. It could only be extinguished by blood. This really exemplifies the religion of white supremacy and the fact that, you know, they they literally have orgasmic passion from brutalizing black people. There is just, I mean, to the point that they will go to war with one another and shed blood to basically have the ability to dominate and rule black people by whichever uh, white group is the dominant white group over the other ones that are all vying for Uh, excuse me, their version of white supremacy to be the dominant one. And uh, this section on page 158, where he said, by the early 1820s, it was simply a case in the United States that enslaved people could only look to no one but themselves for help, and yet they were outnumbered and outgunned. So rebellion and direct resistance would lead only to certain defeat. They would have to change their world in different ways, but even building from within presented problems forced migration, which atomized, groups and erased identities, required enslaved migrants to create new ties to each other and in, in the constantly changing places where they were where they found themselves. Excuse me that that would not be easy. But people, and indeed the world, can change. And I, I'm going to kill it there. But essentially, um, when he talks about that, it says to me that he's basically telling us what we talk about all the time: we are all we have. I mean, literally, like, he's basically telling us we are the ones that have to stop racism and white supremacy. We can't depend on these reptilians for anything. And if we choose to do so, we do so at our own peril. Um, I just found that particular line very telling that a white man would write something like that. Um, And we, as uh, American Africans, to get to read something like that, where basically a white person is telling us the answer to our problem, which many of us haven't come to the conclusion that we are all we have. And... um, also, the section on the following page where uh, it says that in one of the columns was Francis Frederick, who in 1863 recorded what happened on, the night, on that night four decades ago at the head of his line strutting the night star, a tall, quick-witted young man named Ruben. Ruben's cap bristled with sticks and feathers, decorations for the chosen champion of friend and cabin mates who planned to test their skill in the heart of competition to see which game could Chuck Taylor's corn most swiftly. Soon, scores of men poured into the violet circle where corn lay heaped while women moved around the edges to form an audience. The men who knew each other traded jokes and gave sizing up flancers to men, Reuben, and another captain huddled and de- to decide the ground rules. Then the selected pair chose up sides who divided the corn pile into 2 Taylor tailor-handed each cap- uh, captain the all-important jug of liquor. And this speaks uh, back to, again, something I mentioned about uh, the competition that was fostered between different islands in the Caribbean and of course between different groups of African um, American Africans here and also just the fact that again the all-important liquor they want to keep you stupefied so that you can be that zombie that that Mike Brown that they discussed that could just take so many shots so he had to be high on something and just the the whole idea that these things were done in such seemingly innocuous ways we didn't even understand we were being cultivated then to be exactly what we are now in the worst way and to me, that was a very telling um, paragraph in which they stated that. And then here it says, uh, on page 160, it says, The fun and local thing that enslaved people won at such occasions was as sweet as the meal. This is speaking of when they were having a round table. I guess, they were doing like uh, freestyling and, and, and singing and uh, basically improvising uh, mm-hmm. lyrically. And it just made me think of uh, that short, as sweet as a meal, made me think of people like Bill Cosby, Mike Tyson, all of these, uh, black men whose stars burn bright, and when white people love them, they had the world thrown at their feet. And once the once white people turned against them, their lives have been just pure hell. Um, that really gave me a lot of points of thought. And then um, on the opposite page, those who have the book, there's actually a picture of some black men husking corn. And they have a little clip from Harper's Weekly under it. It says, Corn husking, an opportunity for community building, mutual recognition, and improvisational freestyle battling that showcased individual virtuosity. This is from Harper's Weekly, April 13th, 1861. And I found it very telling that they used the term freestyle battling that showcased individual virtuosity, brings me right to hip hop, and how uh, this ability to um, to verbally assault one another with mental dexterity was something that was basically uh, encouraged. And um, for us, it became something that grew into hip hop. And it's just really interesting to see that back then in the 1860s, they would use a term like improvisational freestyle battling, which is something that we heard quite a bit in hip-hop's golden age. So I just find that very telling that that line was used there. And um, also there was a section, uh, yes, on the bottom of page 160, where it says, on such occasions, perhaps even more so on Saturday nights when whites weren't watching, people animated by music and by each other thought and acted and rediscovered themselves as truly alive as people who mattered for their unique abilities and contributions as people in a common situation who could celebrate their own individuality together. And it really made me think about the fact that white people look at us collectively as just animals and beasts of burden um, and things to be exploited and how that kind of brutality and psychological terrorism gave us such a deep need to, it, uh, express ourselves individually and be recognized for individual achievements and i look at traditional african culture in which we are actually communal people and we never really sought to seek personal glory anytime uh black people were exalted in traditional society it was for their contributions to the whole and it didn't mean that they didn't take note of or did not um uh, acknowledge people's individual strengths. It just means that the, the uh, concerns of the collective group always out, outclass the individual wants and needs if those those individual wants and needs were not in concert with the survival of the group and how this basically created like a, re- a reversal in our cultural expression
2: to the model
6: of seeking individual glory like an Oprah Winfrey or Michael Jordan or any other rappers that you want to name today. And, um, how that has been now inculcated and ingrained in us on, on such a deep level, um, not to look at ourselves collectively and our own collective liberation, but to think that we can make it in a society that's dominated by racism, and white supremacy, that does not even give us the ability to be individuals, let alone the collectives. And, um, also it was, oh yeah. Okay. Um, Oh, I found a very telling section in which, uh, he described, uh, white music versus black music. He says on page 164, the tongues of the enslaved learn to keen it or growl, excuse <clears throat> me, growl or laugh their songs in a different way. Each time through, this was very different from white music and white people's song, which stuck to the same lyrics for decades. White musical ensembles played one rhythm at a time. Their dancers followed steps that might, have well, might as well been, been painted on the floor. White musical culture was a especially formation that approved those who marched in time. Black culture was a ring with space in the middle for anyone willing to try his or her steps. And by nourishing, practicing, and training themselves in improvisation, enslaved masters of innovation learned to think creatively as new demands and new dangers emerged to the extent that they could institutionalize anything while living in the midst of white-created chaos. And slave African Americans made the encouragement of creative individual performance the center of gathering. At that Saturday Night Dancing, when a brash nigger boy cut a bunch of steps, the menfolk would give him a dime or so, even though dimes were scarce. And this really speaks to the fact that white people function collectively. They have no uh, creativity whatsoever. They're very left brain people with calcified pineal glands, so their expression is very, um, very. <laughs> Wow, it's almost like looking at the Korean military, the uh, North Korean military, where everybody moves exactly the same. Whereas with African people, we were so in tune with nature that that individual expression could change and shift every time to the point that, like they said, you can hear the same song a hundred times traveling throughout the United States, but it never had the same lyrics because people were able to think on their feet and be so mentally dexterous with their words and their ability to tune in to the unseen and basically express that verbally. So I just found that pretty much fascinating, um, his his breakdown of that. And um, also I found the hang, other hang part tight, about quick, the
0: hang, hang tight real quick. I just want to make sure we, we get everybody in really quick. Oh, sure. no uh, there the, the other folks that uh, had a hand up. Did you all have comments you wanted to get in on the second uh, section? You should be with us as well.
2: Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, yes. First, I'd like to applaud the caller, Rod, for breaking that cycle of violence, that was perpetrated from generation to generation, the anti-blackness that has been taught to African Americans uh, as a scar from slavery, and his comments were constructive. But uh, my point is that uh, John Quincy Adams uh, kept silent, although he knew that slavery was a foul stain upon the Union, and that although uh, he felt strongly about this, he was not thinking about self-sacrifice, but the election in 1824. So it just goes to show that although whites could feel that something is wrong, with mistreating blacks, they will remain solid, and that uh, personal achievements, uh, political gain, outweighs any moral or humanitarian uh, efforts that they might have. And also uh, uh, Henson, uh, Josiah Henson's father, who played the banjo, Anytime time that blacks would get together and start to feel normal or enjoy themselves or some form of relief from the torture and the terrorist acts of whites, they seemed to uh, find a way to uh, end that. So he had the, the fiddler's ear or the banjo player's ear cut off. You know, and that that stopped the uh, banjo for a while. Even the corn corn shucking was an opportunity for community building. And once they found out that it might be something positive for the Africans, then they came in and sold 30 of them so that uh, that wouldn't go on anymore. And... One last thing on page 66, where uh, they said that whites believed that there was a distinct Negro music helped shape another commodity. You know, I think that, uh, you know, anytime that they can see a chance to make a profit off of anything that uh, blacks or other non-white people have created, that they will jump on that chance, and that same thing is going on today. You see it in the music industry and and all other industries, where any creativity that uh, African Americans or blacks have, there's always a white person at the head uh, of the pyramid making the most from that particular form of entertainment. I mute my line. Give
0: somebody else a chance. Thanks. For sure. Other folks who dialed in with the hand up, y'all have comments on the second uh, audio segment. Uh, Bay Area caller Thomas in New York. Was that you, Thomas? Were you going to comment?
5: Oh, I was just going to quickly say, um, and, um, Miles was excellent, um, as was, um, Oh, uh, question, um, I, I just wanted to, to, to just reiterate the point, man. It just hit me home. Like, this was the beginning of freestyling, you know. This was the beginning of freestyle hip-hop where you would, you know, it's also the beginning. I don't know if you guys remember, but, um, around that time, uh, there was a show that used to come on called uh, Uptown Comedy Club. It was like, uh that's what I actually made Tracy Morgan into a star. And um, it was about, you know, the, the, I guess they call it play in the dozens, but the mother joke at the end, that was like the highlight, you know, your mom this. And, and it, it's just like, you know, um, stuff that we've always done, I guess. It, you never
0: really thought of it that way. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Uh, retired firefighter or a Bay Area college. Y'all have anything you want to contribute?
7: I, I would say, uh, due to the, uh, torture and the, uh, terror, uh, when the, uh, torturer and the terrorist, uh, took time out to no longer be in your physical presence. Uh, I'm trying to think what's that, what's that, uh, that psychological uh, behavior uh, uh, that takes place where the the captive ends up mimicking his or her oppressor. Uh, Stockholm Stockholm syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, basically, basically, uh, my thoughts from listening to this, and I, I, I mean, of course, I had some clues to before this this, this book. But uh, the uh, some of the origins of a lot of the origins of our expression is due to uh, that Stockholm syndrome. Act, you know, when the, when the master or the oppressor is not in your presence, you mimic you mimic that person uh, to to each other, uh, and and it becomes like a game almost, a rhythmic type of game between each other as the last caller uh stated uh the 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 nickname if you will from it is called playing the dozens and uh through the idea of besting the other person it becomes more and more rhythmic uh and, and that sort of thing and uh if, as as deep psychological conditions uh, take place, it, it lingers and stays around until until the victims do something about it consciously. Do something about it, and uh, apparently, as of this date, uh, a significant number of us have not uh, had the interest uh, to uh, work towards solving. Uh, the results of uh, the problem and the problem itself. Thank you. For sure. Uh, Bay Area calling, do you have anything you
0: wanted to get in or are you just listening?
1: I, I was listening, but I, I do want to say that I after listening, well, as I listen to this book, it kind of, um, well, it actually justifies the conditioning as of now and it also justified how they are right now and what they want right now so that that's all i was thinking as i um listened to all the comments and so forth thank you
0: for sure Um, see if I can go quickly uh, with some of the things that I observed one thing that stood out from the first audio segment, uh, we wrote of course not all the benefits of torture for profit appeared in black and red ink, some enslavers beat captives who lied, and then again as one formerly enslaved person said, when you tell them the truth they whip you to make you lie they beat captives who uh, resisted they beat those who did not enslavers beat the enslaved to a sewage jealousy, yes, jealousy of a field hand who had picked 300 pounds a day. Edwin Epps envied the narrow transcendence of his power that Patsy, Patsy's unconscious grace in the field revealed. Beyond the body he raped, the womb whose children he could sell, the back he flayed, there was part of her that danced and he hated it. I thought that was extremely significant, particularly I think we had a caller yesterday who uh, was getting to why white people do this. And I think even Mr. Fuller in his book where he says that uh, white people do this because they hate not being black, even in this position uh, on plantation, formal plantation slavery. uh, To hear that uh, being described in that matter, I thought was really important. Uh, moving to the second uh, audio segment, uh, I thought it was uh, quite revealing in talking about the challenges that whites faced uh, in remaining unified and terrorizing uh, black people. Are we going to have continue to have this type of enslavement or are we going to do it in a different manner and trying to get some sort of agreement about that? I thought it was especially important when he said that some of the New England uh, whites, uh, a la where Maine is with Governor LePage, that they were not so zealous about putting any restrictions on enslavement, that they were making a lot of money uh, and that they were working hand in hand with whites. Not that everybody else wasn't, but it seemed like they especially were working directly uh, with white enslavers down south. And we're trying to get this money. Hey, we got no problem with you doing with the niggers. Let's just keep going. Uh, and particularly when he continued uh, after they kind of resolved things about the Missouri crisis uh, that in New York, they said, well, hey, let's, let's make sure we can minimize skirmishes amongst whites. We'll remove property restrictions for white people so that they can vote, so we can be a bit more unified. And at the same time, we will make it more difficult for black people to vote in the state of New York. I thought that was extremely important. Um, where he says uh, some southern leaders were realizing that they would have little trouble creating winning interregional coalitions that allowed for further exploitation of enslaved african-americans so long as they could make the claim that their policies supported increased democracy amongst whites i think that's been a constant theme every single week that we've read this text in terms of white people coalescing and uh, putting their differences aside in the name of continued brutality against black people um, I thought it was strange where he talked about this a little later. i get to that in a second where I think Mr. Dimery already said where, you know, black person is, is pretty good at music, enjoys it, and the white person comes and cuts off his ear, uh, this sort of uh, premeditated cruelty. That picture is in the book, the the one that Roz was talking about, where it shows the black people uh, shucking corn. I had said this some years ago. I had heard that term, uh, shucking and jiving. I had heard that before, and I didn't even know what it meant until – Uh, Some years ago, we had started doing the program and I was paying more attention to words and looking at it's like, oh, okay, this is, you know, some plantation talk and and time to harvest corn. And I said, I will never describe what a black person is doing uh, if I don't like it, if I oppose it, because that's normally the way that I hear the term used, Uh, you know, cut out all that shucking and jiving and that sort of thing. When I don't agree with the way that you're responding to racism and think that you might be uh, placating, kowtowing to racists, I will never use that term to describe uh, another black person, victim of racism, uh, this process, what they call shucking and jiving, this is total, uh, terrorism. And to make it seem like this is all fun, like, yeah, this is just a little contest. And you know, the niggers just went out and doing a little corn. We just had a little fun playing in the field. That is, it is the height of disrespect, uh, for our family, our ancestors and what they were forced to do, where you've got armed white terrorists around to make you do this and to make sure that you do this and try to do it as fast as possible and all of this for their benefit and profit. Uh, Just hearing all of this further reinforced that I will never use that word and I hope other folks uh, will discontinue referencing uh, the shucking and jiving is what black people are doing. Uh, Walt Whitman was mentioned. We've talked about him before uh, on the program. Notorious racist white supremacist. This is someone who wrote proudly about his opposition to anything uh, ending quote unquote slavery, uh, and that he thought niggers were dumb and stupid. This is somebody who is revered uh, in the field of uh, literature. Uh, this area, of the where I think worldwide, it's not just here. Um, where where it says later on on Sunday mornings, remember George Strickland of his boyhood in Alabama. They white folks would give us biscuits for breakfast, which was rare, which was so rare that we tried to beat others. Out of theirs, children fought for the taste of white flour to the laughter of enslavers, uh, and some enslaved people, old enough, no better, acted much the same when the music started. I thought that was really important, again, showing the sadistic side of white people and just white flour. generally, most things that are white are generally not good for you uh, white flour, white sugar. White bread, all of their refined, unnatural products generally are not the healthiest things uh, to consume. And, and just hearing that, pas- the way it uh, was played out in that passage, uh, just further showed uh, the the nature of racist man, racist woman. Um, there are quite a few interesting little pictures uh, in this. I've said that before. If you, even if you don't get the book to follow along, just to check out some of the pictures and footnotes is pretty uh, pretty fascinating. Uh, I thought it was significant when he's talking about how uh, this blackface and the entertainment, Last year was the 100 year anniversary of birth of a nation, uh, how blackface and mocking abusing black people that became, you know, the principal industry of entertainment, which is not surprising when, you know, white terrorism. That is the dominant concept idea on the planet It is not surprising. Like we're going to be thinking about this at all times, even in our recreational hours. Somehow we want to make sure that the focus is still on what are we supposed to be doing, beating on, making fun of, abusing these Negroes um i thought it was inaccurate on the part of the author particularly given we're, we're at like 40 percent of the book for him to say that the uh this space this ring where they're doing this dancing and all this stuff uh that this is a ring that whites uh could not penetrate uh that i want to make sure i read it correctly it says uh the circle, of course, became all the more fascinating to whites as it grew more impenetrable. That just is total nonsense. Uh, it's totally inact, particularly given everything that he's described. I mean, I can sell you at will. I could sell everybody in the circle right now. Uh, and who's going to stop me? I could beat everybody in the circle. I could chop off everybody's ear on uh, the circle. What are you talking about? I can't penetrate this. If I wanted to come out here and hang around and participate in some of this foolishness, I could do that. Who would stop me? I just thought it was totally inaccurate. And I feel like I hear that sort of thing regularly uh, from whites uh, that they can't penetrate or they can't be there. And I think we've heard this over and over and over in many of the books that we've done, uh, even including Malcolm X, where white folks seem to have no problem penetrating Any space, any area where black people are, whether it's for terroristic purposes, amusement purposes, both, uh, they seem to have no problem doing that. Then, 19th century, no problem doing that. Now, 2016, you can look at all the protests and demonstrations that white folks have seemed to have had no problem uh, infiltrating. Uh, With that, I will pause there. Uh, We are almost at the end of this chapter, so we are making good haste. Uh, We pretty much did our three hours, but I'll give 60 seconds. If anybody, any quick comment that they want to make sure that they get in before this, uh, we wrap up to uh, this week's episode, 60 seconds. Anybody have anything they want to make sure they get in concisely? Uh, uh, Everyone satisfied? Superb. Uh, we will be back next Friday, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, looking forward to uh, continuing with the book. Again, hope it's a constructive investment of folks' time and energy. Uh, I'll say uh, really quickly, I think people made the, the comparison that I think is accurate to what we're hearing about this festive uh uh, environment where they were dancing both with the, the corn shucking where that became a competition uh, and just the, the dancing and music that was going on uh, and some of their quote-unquote free time uh, and comparing it to hip-hop even in hip-hop I think there's a lot of uh, derisiveness putting down other people it's not just I'm I'm saying things for the purpose of being funny or what have you a lot of it is putting down talking bad about other black people and just continuing a lot of those same uh, patterns that we have been exhibited and, and really Forced into accepting and manifesting under the system of white supremacy, uh, but we will be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, same time, not war. 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Eastern normal broadcast time for the Saturday program. 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll recap. Uh, kind of some of the things that happened during the first week. Uh, if any of the folks uh, are in attendance for the memorial on the campus of Howard University in Washington, D.C. for Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, if you want to give us a report, that would be great. I know it's going on for uh, quite a long time uh, tomorrow, so you should have ample time if you, you know, go check that out and participate. Uh, and then later on in the evening, uh, if you want to come in and, and kind of give us an update, I'm sure a lot of listeners would appreciate uh, just kind of hearing uh, what goes down tomorrow, uh, paying respects uh, to the late Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, but we will be here tomorrow. We'll also be here on Monday. Uh, we should have a uh, black female guest joining us from Canada. We'll be good to get, hear her thoughts as well. Uh, if you have questions, problems, gripes, uh, guest suggestions, drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail. Dot com. And that goes as well for folks if you're listening to the archives of the book study and you know you can't participate live, but you have you know feedback, comments that you want to add in. You can just email them to me and then I can read them the following week. As I said, we probably got a good month, uh, probably about a month and a half before we complete this book. So ample time. You can get your thoughts in on what uh, we've done so far and we'll have more to come. That said, this week, another great example in the reading. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, We really want to make every effort to be in our correct thinking mind, lucid, clear headed, so we can make the best possible decisions to protect ourselves and other folks that we might be responsible for under the system of white terrorism. You never know when you're going to bump into Brian Incinia, Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson. Uh, you really want to make sure that you are alert and well, high-functioning uh, for any of those incidents so you can uh, make the best decision. Uh, also, if you're going to be a driver, passenger, pedestrian, you don't want to be under the influence. Uh, even folks that are walking, whites are constantly looking to make problems for us. I would definitely avoid being around intoxicated white people, and I would encourage You probably don't want to be around non-white people if they're under the influence uh, just frequently. Those environments, they're rife with conflict, problems, and we already have enough difficulties as victims of white supremacy. We do not need to unnecessarily add to our strife. That being said, uh, we're fundraising for uh, 2016. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-Notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email, and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested and kept us rolling for to be seven years. Next month, uh, hope we have been constructive and helping folks get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. Lack self-respect is more powerful than a nuclear weapon. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context: The white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed.
4: I'm a victim, brother.
6: Problem.
0: You're a victim. I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.
5: (laughs)